0: Welcome to Small Subjects, Big Ideas About Miniatures and Modeling. I'm Jim DeRogatis in Chicago. And I'm Barry
1: Biedecker in Salt Lake City.
0: Happy New Year, Barry. This is the second day of 2022. So far, it's not, uh, it's not sucking quite as much as
1: 2021. No, it's yeah. Happy New Year.
0: Yeah, Happy New Year. So uh, we have switched to a monthly schedule, mainly because you have been insanely busy with work, and it's not like I'm not always insanely busy, I am, but, uh, but you do all the work on this podcast, and I <laughs> must thank you for that again.
1: Well, you bet. It's...
0: You're doing a hell of a job.
1: Well, thank you. It does take a lot of time to edit these things, a lot more than people might imagine.
0: It takes a lot of time to edit, it takes time to organize, it takes time to carve out and tape, uh, you know, our parts of the show, because people probably don't know a lot about how this is... Put together. And I'm going to put an article in the next issue of The Scabbard because some of our Military Miniature Society of Illinois uh, fellows, <laughs> noise fellows, uh, like don't even know how to listen to a podcast, right? Much less what one is and how it is done. You know, um, it, it's. Uh, I have a weekly radio show, as I've said many times, on hundred something between 125 and 150 radio stations. But half of our listenership comes from podcast. And I know, you know, I, I think the best way to explain it to people who don't know is it's like having the DVR. You know, I will intentionally start a program half an hour after it's begun just so I can fast forward to the commercials, through the commercials, and listen when I choose to listen.
1: Sure, yeah.
0: And a podcast you can listen to any time, and but you know we recorded uh, an interview like the one we have today, and then we have to put the rest of the show together around it, and you have to equalize the volume of all three or four uh, people in the conversation, mm-hmm. and put it all together. It's a noise pain correction
1: the and uh, you know, yeah. certain certain little uh, tweaks you have to make to the sound. Sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh anyway, you've been doing a great job and and we just hit what? 7500 downloads?
1: Yeah, which is not really impressive, but at least we're getting listens, I guess. <laughs>
0: well, you keep saying that, but um I will point out to you that we never have more than 200 exhibitors at a at a at a really good show. Sure. You know, 200, 300 exhibitors uh I guess World Expo was closer to 500. So if you average that out, my friend.
1: Right. Well, it's, a, it's
0: a small hobby about doing small things.
1: <laughs> we're, in, we're a niche part of a niche hobby. And uh, mm-hmm. we're a very small niche. Yes. Plastic modelers, I don't know what the numbers are, but there, there has to be at least uh, 10, 20 times more uh, plastic modelers than there are miniaturists, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, I would say so, but we're always encouraging uh, every uh, everyone who's interested in, in modeling or painting to sure. come along, come on board. So uh, I that's have been, part of what this podcast is about.
1: Yeah, I have been getting questions and uh, feedback from people who are armor modelers, especially who are just trying to work on their first figure or get back into figures, and it's it's so there are people listening and getting something out of it, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Well, we have uh, it is a cliche in broadcasting uh, to say that we have a guest today who really needs no introduction, <laughs> but uh, that's that's pretty much true. <laughs> yeah,
1: I would say. <laughs> you know, and
0: Bill Haran is a giant in this small field of ours.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure. From this time, I think from a week into this podcast, I I. I started hearing people say, when are you going to talk to Bill Horan? When are you going to talk to Bill Haran?" That was a constant from the beginning.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, we've mentioned Shep Payne innumerable times, and I think, you know, and, and Shep passed away. Uh, you know, after that, I think Bill is probably the most famous uh, modeler in the field. Uh, you know, mind you, that's like saying you're the greatest chef in Poland. Uh, <laughs> no offense to my Polish friends. Um, yeah, I'm in well, Chicago. I have a lot of them.
1: Well, you're also part Polish, too, so, right?
0: I am one-quarter Kopaczynski. There you, there this you go. This is true. So, yeah. so uh, I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> um, you know, Bill uh, has written two books. Uh, Bill Horan's Military Modeling Masterclass came out on Windrow and Green, Uh, many years ago. The Complete Bill Horan uh, is a beautiful coffee table book on Andrea Press. Some of the photo reproduction is uh, not exactly great, but uh, it's an impressive book to see the overview of his work. Uh, He's written countless articles. He is a presence at every major miniature show uh, in the United States and in Europe. He's a driving force behind uh, World Expo as the leader of the uh, World Model Soldier Federation, a group that was started by Shep Payne to bring together modelers uh, from Europe and the U.S. with the goal always of uh, reaching out further to Asia and uh, to uh, South America. We've had Russian modelers come, and that's always a thrill. You and I, one of our highlights of one of the (laughs) world expos we attended was meeting uh, two gregarious fellows who had driven... I don't. I mean, that road trip was what seventy-two hours or something. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And from, they had from driven the, the, from from Russia, the Ukraine, uh, from the Ukraine
1: to Switzerland. So yeah, that's quite a haul.
0: I I really hope they're okay right now. It looks like the Ukraine is hurtling toward uh, trouble. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So why do you think uh, people have been uh, asking for Bill from day one?
1: Well, I think he's he's one of the stars, and he is one of the few. Who just represented a a complete sea change in the miniature world? I mean, there's be- yeah, for, there's before Shep and after Shep, and there's before Bill Haran and after Bill Haran, and there yeah, are there aren't agree. many who who you can say that about.
0: No, that's absolutely true. I also think um, you know, although Bill is an extremely gre- gregarious fellow, I think people are intimidated to talk to him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm... you know, so
0: they want us to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know I was at first, and he he kind of uh, he set me at ease by making light of it, uh, of how how yeah. nervous I was, which actually <laughs> kind of made me uh, feel a little bit more calm. <laughs>
0: oh well, that's that's very kind, uh, and he is happy to talk. Um, you know, there was this old joke about Shep uh, when people would trepidatiously approach him if he could hear them because mm-hmm. sometimes the hearing aid was off but they would approach him and say something like how did you paint the groundwork and famously he'd say with green paint yeah <laughs> right and some some people would then walk away you know my first interaction with bill was sort of like that i was doing a big <laughs> diorama of the uh, storming of Badajoz, mm-hmm. the uh, spanish uh uh, citadel that was held by the French uh, in the Napoleonic Wars, and the British uh, famously took it by by assault uh, of these incredibly tall walls with ladders. Yeah. Talk about the forlorn hope. Mm-hmm. And I was I asked him a pretty specific question, knowing that he was an expert in uh, all things British imperial excursions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I asked him, you know, why they the uh, shakos were so different. Uh, in the Peninsular campaign by the Brits than they were uh, in the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm -hmm. And I I forgot what he said. Uh, You know, something like they had different hats. (laughs) 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 But, you know, sometimes with Shep's green paint and Bill's different hats, it's a joke. And, you know, people slink away before... Continuing the conversation, right, right, that yeah. is, 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 you know, yeah. people don't understand the sense yeah. of humor. Right. So I, uh, I'll, I'll wh- have
1: to tell you the, the story about when I met Shep the first time some sometime. Because uh, I think
0: you've told me this, but I'm forgetting it.
1: Uh, well, should I tell it now? Sure. Uh, so the first, it was the second figure show I'd ever been to. The first figure show I went to was Scams in 2004, and then I decided to go to Chicago that fall. 2004, Mm. and um, I had emailed back and forth with him a couple times over figuring out the room dimensions in the Boston World Expo. They were doing the planning for that at the time, which happened in 2005, Uh, but but I had never met him in person, and I didn't know anything really much about him, Uh, but I passed him in the hall in the hotel, and I said, hi, Shep, and I started to talk to him. And he kind of looked at me for just a split second as if he was looking behind me, and he looked around, turned around, and walked away from me. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, okay, well, that's yep. how it is. Uh, and then I realized later that, of course, he had really bad hearing. He wore hearing aids. Yes. He just couldn't hear me.
0: But Hearing aids, singular. He he was uh, too frugal, I'll put it that way, to get the... Uh, the- aid for the other ear. That's right. And he had, you know, and those of us who cared for Shep and were friends with Shep, um, he had found like the cheapest place possible in Rockford, Illinois, Mm -hmm. which is about a 90-minute drive from Chicago. And he was forever having to go to have this thing tinkered with. And this guy, I'm telling you, it looked like his hearing aid pieces came from Radio Shack,
2: <laughs>
0: you know, and not, not even the top of the line Radio Shack <laughs> pieces. You know, so I'd drive him out there to Rockford, and, you know, the guy would tweak something, and we'd have lunch, and I'd drive him back. And, um, you know, and we were always saying, you know, Shep, why don't you let us all chip in and buy you a better hearing aid or a second hearing aid to augment the one? Mm-hmm. And, oh, no, no, I, think I got no problem you know but yet you know 3 out of 5 people he'd see at at the show uh he'd walk right past when they said hello cuz yeah. he didn't hear it
1: yeah yeah i found out pretty quickly that that was a commonly uh a common misconception that he was just really rude and aloof and that wasn't the case at all he, that's not true at he, all no, he was I happy don't. to to talk to anybody
0: it's one of my enduring uh disappointments that he didn't uh that we, we didn't do a GoFundMe to get Shep better hearing aids. but Well, but uh, if you remember,
1: it, he did something right before our trip when we went to France that, that made it, I don't know if he got a new hearing aid or something, but he was No, hear- we
0: went out to Rockford, and he got the thing cleaned out. That's all it was? That's all it was. I, I took him.
2: <laughs> okay, wow.
0: And it would work good for, you know, two months, and then the Radio Shack battery part, whatever, would uh, die.
1: Well, I just remember sitting across the table from him, and and Joan and I are pretty quiet people. And yes, we, you are. We were having a conversation, and it didn't even occur to me he could hear me, and he heard some very quiet thing that we had said, and yeah. kind of. So he he could hear stuff.
0: He could hear stuff, uh, but after, there were other times after the
1: Rockford trips. I guess he could hear for a while
0: after the Rockford trip, and then the thing would yeah. And then there were other times where he just didn't want to be bothered, like when he was tallying. Uh, the judges' scores oh, in yeah. the judges' room, oh, yeah. and he would say, "Radio Sheppy signing off," and he would turn <laughs> the thing off. <laughs> yeah. You know, and people would stick their heads in and say, "Hi, Shep," but at that point, he didn't want to hear them. In any event, yeah. uh, you know, two things uh, quickly: um, you and Joan are very quiet people. Carmel is taking a room a nap in the other room here, and I said, "I'm going to tape with Barry." And she said, I'm going to take a nap. And I said, uh, I'll talk quieter than usual. And she said, they won't be able to tell you apart from Barry if you do that.
1: <laughs> I, I don't think there'll be a problem with that.
0: No, I don't think so. And also, no. uh, you know, if I don't laugh loudly and peak your meters, Alan Ball will be disappointed. <clears throat>
1: right. And, but it will be easier to mix because I won't have to compress your, your, your audio okay. so much.
0: Okay. I will try to remember to pull back. Uh, <laughs> uh, laughter is one of life's great joys, Barry Budiker. Yeah. yeah, I'm always uh,
1: I'm laughing inside a lot more often than it seems.
0: But no, it's yeah. true, and you have a very dry sense of humor. That's true. Uh, the second thing, and how's this for a pro segue? Uh, people never have a hard time hearing Bill Haran. Mm. <laughs> Ooh, that <was> good. <laughs> <laughs> Bill is is. Uh, vociferous with his opinions and his conversations, and he is a pleasure yeah. to talk to and to listen to. So without further ado, let's dive into chatting with the one and only Bill
1: Herhan. Okay. Very good segue. You're, you must be a pro.
0: I'm a pro. Or at least I've gotten away with it for several decades. <laughs> Well, we are thrilled to have Bill Haran here. Uh, before the holiday, after your daughter's wedding, Amazing. it's been a busy, t- busy time for you, Bill.
3: Yeah, it's been a really, well, it's been a crazy year. I mean, it's been a bittersweet year. I mean, obviously, the wedding was a huge thing. We had my, my brother-in-law passed away earlier in the year, and my
2: a oh. close mm. cousin
3: of mine died just a few weeks after the wedding, and And yet we've got two. uh, I've got two nieces who had beautiful baby girls this year. So we had a wedding, two births, and two deaths. So it's probably a lot of families out there have similar stories. I imagine it's it's
0: been a roller coaster for two years for everybody. It it doesn't seem
3: like it's getting any. It's it's it's, the the end is in sight yet either. So no,
0: no, it isn't.
3: No. But anyway, life goes on. I mean, that's we're getting to the yes. point in our lives now where we're sadly a lot of good things, but also a lot of sad things are happening. And that's I guess that's just part of getting older.
0: Yeah, you know? it's, it's true. We got to stop losing people in the hobby. That's for sure.
3: Well, yeah, we lost a lot of them. That's for sure. Yeah, we really did.
0: So, Bill, um, you know, Barry and I were talking about a game plan here, and obviously between the two books, Military Modeling Masterclass, that wonderful Windrow and Green book, (coughs) and the complete Bill Horan, yeah. which is now no longer complete. Well, it no, probably it's... wasn't complete the day it came out in 2004. It
3: was almost complete when it came out. There were only a few things that I'd done afterward, after I finished it. But, yeah, you're right. There's probably enough to do a whole other one now, I imagine.
0: I think so. That was one of my questions. But, I, you know, despite the fact that you've told this story, people really enjoy hearing uh, from everybody we're interviewing uh, how they got their start. So, so uh you know, uh, it's, it's good to ask you when you fell in love with this idea of modeling.
3: Well, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to say, you know, I, I kind of, I get asked that question a lot and I kind of, I kind of answer it a little bit differently every time. And I guess the answer is I just kind of gradually like drifted or fell into it. Um, you know, I started out like a lot of young boys did back in the, 60s and early 70s, you know, building plastic models and and I was pretty prolific at that. I mean, I, I thought I was really good, but of course I was 10 years old, so good is a relative. So yeah, it's
0: relative, yeah.
3: <laughs> the, way, the way I knew I was good is because my mom and dad said I was
0: good. <laughs> right, right, right.
3: But uh, you know, I got so I was really I was I got so I was really fast at doing models, and I was going through. My dad was always really generous about buying me kits to build and all that. I guess it, it kind of kept me quiet and kept me occupied, and um, and I I quickly got to the point where I was like getting through all the ones that I I started off by doing a bunch of Tamiya stuff, and first I started off with crazy kind of like. Um, uh, you know, cars and then planes. And then I got into tanks and I got into Tamiya and I built everything that Tamiya came out with. And even when I got bored, I would just go back and repaint ones that I had already done just because I didn't have anything else new to do. <laughs> and then I got into monogram and that was when I discovered Shep.
2: Yeah, And right.
3: uh, And I think I was probably 14 years old, something like that 13, 14 years old when I saw the first, little insert that he had in his uh, monogram kits and it just completely blew my brains out, man. I mean, uh, I, I just could never, I was just so proud of the fact that I was able to get the little black dots inside of where the eyes were with my little toothpick. I thought (laughs) I was just such a great painter. Uh, (laughs) And I looked at his and I realized not only was I not in the same league, I wasn't even playing the same sport. (laughs) Um, you know, it was just like, in fact, and that was kind of like scourging initially. I remember having this conversation with chef years ago. I said, I was really discouraged when I saw that. He said, he said, well, I thought it would have encouraged you. And I said, well, it did eventually, but there was this sort of realization that, that you thought you were kind of going down the right road, but then you realized just how far you had to go to really be able to produce something that was really special, but it always kind of stuck with me and, and it always kind of kept a bar in my you know, kind of a bar that I wanted uh, to aspire to, and uh, and then life took over. My dad got transferred, and the family got transferred to uh, Southeast Asia. We lived in Singapore for a few years. Um, my, uh, uh, in fact, my high school, my high school career was one year in in uh, Washington, up up near Seattle, in Bothell, Washington. That was my freshman year. My next two years were in Sing at the Singapore American School, and my senior year was at beaconsfield high outside of montreal so i literally went to high school in three different countries
0: wow and
3: uh but during that time especially in singapore uh i got really exposed to humbrels in a big way and because singapore being a former british colony a lot of the products that were available hobby products were very british based not only humbrel but airfix and all of that and I just mm. never even had any clue that anybody painted in anything but enamels. I thought what you did is you went to the store and you bought your kit and then you walked over to the paint rack and you bought your paints and then you walked <laughs> over to the to the bin and bought your brushes and you, they put them all in a bag that you paid for them and you went home and then you painted. I, I thought that's what everybody was doing. And right, uh, right. it wasn't until years later that I realized, no, you got it wrong, Bill, but it was pretty much painting in oils. But I found out there were a number of other guys as well that were doing the same thing. But I, you know, I got into, I, I really developed a, a real fascination with doing figures, and eventually I kind of lost interest in the mechanical aspects of, of plastic modeling. I'm just not basically a mechanically inclined person anyway, so the human element of it and doing these little people became more and more intriguing to me. And also with all of our travels, I got more and more interested in history. First mm-hmm. in Singapore, and then in, in Canada, and then later when uh, when we moved to South Africa briefly, um, you know, I, I got really interested in, Brit- in British history and British colonial history. And that, I've always been interested in history, but those things sort of became really kind of special subjects that really fascinated me. And I guess they all kind of came together, you know, uh, during this time. I started building kits, you know, plastic, uh, you know, uh, metal kits, painting them, uh, waiting for the next one to come out from David Grieve or, or, uh, uh, you know, Richard Almond or a lot of the other guys that were producing kits back in the early Mm eighties or early seven. Yeah. Early eighties, I guess it was. And then I just got frustrated. You know, the, the quality of kits that were coming out was kind of sporadic. There was a good one every year or two, but I worked a lot faster than that. And I found myself buying kits that I thought were like okay because I was generally interested in subjects and then uh, I I decided well why don't I start I mean I've done a little fiddling around with conversions and sticking different arms and legs on guys and swapping a head out and all that kind of stuff you know not really what I call original work but um, Mike Good came to a club meeting once out here at Scams uh, back in the about the early probably early 80s and Mike Hmm. brought this putty called Duro. Hmm. Uh, and he sat down and he just did a little basic sculpting with it and showed how it was, how it worked. And I was just completely fascinated. And, um, the next morning I went out and bought some, and I had some Airfix plastic, uh, world war II kits that I wanted to convert. And so I got my hobby knife out, started scraping the plastic off. Uh, and so I could build them back up again. I got my new packet of Duro out, opened it up, started putting clothing on them and found out hey, I, I can do this. And I can, I remember calling, calling to the other room to my wife, Heather, come in, look at this. this is really good. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, she said, oh yeah, it really is. And of course I knew it was looking good because, you know, I, I'd been around it long enough to know when it, when it was right and when it wasn't right. And so yeah. I was just, from that point on, I was just completely transformed. Um, And, uh, you know, from there, it just then it just got to be how could I do more and what what more can I do? And then I realized when I could start doing my own figures, there was absolutely no limit to what I could do. I could do anything. Uh, I didn't have to wait for the next kit to come out. I didn't need to wait. I didn't need to write to Richard, to David Greaves saying, hey, why don't you do this figure? Why don't you do that figure? I could do it myself. Um, it, It was just an incredible amount of freedom that 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 yielded. And from that point on, I went from a guy who dabbled in models uh, and, you know, really only shared it with like my closest friends and family to being somebody that really was completely addicted. Um, and it's been that way ever since. Mm. So I'm sorry to give you the long answer there. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, We're I,
1: loving for, it. Before you before you say anything, Jim, I just I got to geek out for a second here. So yeah. so um, you can see this. OK, can't you, Bill? Oh yeah. I don't know if oh, you yeah, I don't know if you see this on this page here. But there's a hole in this book where I was sculpting and closed a bit of duro in it and it gets, <laughs> when i opened it up again you know it ripped up the the book oh so. my god
3: i might need to get geek, geek out and get my um building building dioramas book of chefs out because that thing is still so encrusted with putty and paint and everything else <laughs> oh yeah yeah mine it, is
0: messed up mine it, is it, in it separate literally sheets.
3: looks like it was left on a dirty floor after a concert you know <laughs> i mean it looks like it's like a whole army drapes through it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i have pages falling out and everything else I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, we've all can- got we've all got little Bibles like that. That yep. you know, different points in time we came into the hobby. You know that we were kind of inspired by different people, and yeah, it's just. But but thank you for that, Barry. It's nice to know <laughs> I was an inspiration.
0: <laughs> Very inspirational. Can you can you recall, uh, Bill? When when was the first time you met Shep in person? And, oh my uh, and, I, and showed rem- him your work. It's always I remember a it thing.
3: I actually I remember it absolutely vividly. <laughs> I think it was ninety. It was nineteen eighty five. I went. It was the first uh, MFCA show I'd ever been to. And me and my buddy John Canning, who I had just met about a year and a half before, and we'd immediately gotten to be really close friends. Um, in fact, John is my oldest daughter's godfather. Mm. Um, John said, "You know, you really." And Terry Worster was out here as well. And Terry and John both said, you know, you real, Bill, you really got to go back to the MFCA show in Chester. And I said, well, when is it and where is it? And he said, well, it's in Chester, Pennsylvania. It's back near Philadelphia. And I said, okay. So I said, okay. Well, I got to figure out how to pay for it, but yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, for sure. I'll go. And we went and, and, uh, and I, I remember talking to, to John about all the people that were going to be there. He said, Oh, everybody will be there. Shep will be there. Peter twist. And he started reeling off guys, you know, Mike Tapavica and, And Mike, uh, Mike Leonard and uh, Peter Jensen and just a whole long laundry list of names that Joe Burton that I that I'd heard of, but I'd never met any of them. So it was literally like being invited to your first, uh, you know, backstage to your first concert, you know, it was (laughs) kind of like (laughs) like what it felt like. And I remember asking Terry because I could see Shep over there. I said, would you mind introducing me to Shep? And he said, sure. Come on over. So Terry's always got his cowboy hat on, and his cowboy boots. We kind of saunter, sauntered over, and Shep kind of looked at me, and, I, and now I look back on it, and I think, boy, how many people have been introduced to Shep over the years? I mean, okay, here's another one he's probably thinking. So he looked over, he kind of gave me that little cockeyed smile, that kind of quick little nod of his head, you know, and he said, oh, nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, reached out his that. hand, and I shook his hand, and I was immediately taken at what a lousy handshake he had.
0: <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yep. he had very small hands and and a, and a weak handshake.
1: That's right. And, and they
3: were always and there. It was always a very weak handshake and kind of a mm-hmm. cold, kind of a cool, clammy handshake. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> I remember I brought a box diorama that year. It was it was one of only two that I did I had ever done, and it was one I'd done when I just gotten into converting figures of Rourke's drift. And it got a silver medal that year. And I remember Shep had some really nice things to say. I didn't talk to him very much, just very briefly. I think uh, a little later in the day, um, I was just too nervous to talk to him, to be honest with you. I was just completely petrified because I felt like I already knew him. You know, I mean, I had his books. I kind of modeled everything I was trying to do on pictures of his style, even though he was painting in oils, I was in enamels again. I didn't know the difference at the time. Um, So I was just kind of completely in awe. Um, that was the first time I met him. Uh, but the, the interesting thing was the following year when I came back, I brought some stock figures. And I remember I was already getting to that point in the hobby where I was getting some pressure from my wife, like, OK, you're spending all this money so you could fly back and forth the country across the country, buying all these kits that are costing us a fortune. And we're kind of living on a budget in an apartment here um, you know, you need to sell a couple if you could sell a couple of your figures to help pay for this, it would be great. So I'll see what I can do. And of course I didn't have any idea. How to, I was just doing stock figures. Right. So, yeah. uh, I didn't have any idea how much to ask. And I think I found myself with Shep and Shep was, it was like midway through the day on Saturday, the show was almost over. And, uh, the subject of selling figures came up and Shep said, you haven't sold any of your figures yet. And I said, no. And he said, well, just wait right here. And he walked over, and he got, I think, he got like Jim Gibson and Chris Durham, and I can't remember who else came over. And within about ten minutes, I'd sold like five figures.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah
0: <laughs> It was
3: literally like it was literally like like Shep said, "Hey, you three knuckleheads, come over here, buy some figures off this guy."
0: <laughs> yeah, and they it's did the an- it. the anointing, the anointing. Yeah.
3: Oh, <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, I just realized what influence he had, and also but it was also so uh, much appreciated that it really made it a lot easier for me to justify traveling back in those days when we were still, yes. you know, we were living on a really tight budget and uh, I, I, it was a little selfish of me to be spending so much money and so much time working on something that was after all, really just for my own amusement. And, you know, we were about to start a family and everything else. So it, it was a really, really big thing. So those are kind of my earliest ship, uh, my earliest chef memories i guess Jim. Do you,
1: do you do you happen to remember which was the first uh tip sheets you you saw of chefs
3: um i remember the one where the guys were painting the sherman tank mm. with the white mm. whitewash in, yep. in the uh in the uh the ardennes mm-hmm. i remember i i remember virtually all of them uh the ones that come to mind most readily were that one There was another one where uh, uh, there was, uh, I think, a Pershing tank in the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. that was rumbling over a bunch of rubble. Uh, That was fascinating to see the way he'd articulated the wheels and the the treads where they were sagging down. Because I built a lot of tanks when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. and I'd never been able to figure out how to make the tank treads look so natural and the bogey wheels, the way they were going over the rubble, and they were all articulated mm-hmm. with the suspension. It was like, oh, cool! I wish I'd thought of that when I was doing tanks. <laughs> yeah, so cool. Yeah, yeah. And there were a few yeah. others. I think there was one where he had like a flak a German flak wagon that was on a small bridge with the mm-hmm, water mm-hmm. that he built. Um, but I was also not just impressed with the painting of the figures and the staging and the composition. Those were all, of course, just fantastic. But I, I was, I, I was really really so impressed also with the precision and the neatness and cleanness of the way the, the dioramas were presented the nice neat lines and the groundwork and I, I've always kind of had there are little little things that every once in a while I kind of go back to and I think god you know how why don't I, I realized you know I kind of do this it probably goes back to seeing some of that first up I still have this kind of idea of how I want to present things and it's, and it's almost like someone has taken a really sharp like chef's knife and cut some nice neat little square out of a patch of earth that has a cool figure on it or a cool scene on it. Mm -hmm. And just neatly lifted it up hydraulically somehow and set it on this, on this beautiful little base. And uh, I think the first time I saw that really was, uh, that was one of the little subtle things of chefs that I, that I picked up in addition to all the obvious stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, Bill, uh, one of the things that I think you really inherited from Shep. Uh, and took it to a, an even uh, bigger level in some ways because it's it's harder to tell a story with a single figure than it is with a diorama with a vehicle and several figures, right? Um, and, but it's it's a recurring theme, this notion of storytelling that Barry and I keep coming back to. And while we see so many uh, impressive pieces at the shows uh, of late, um, you know, we, we don't remember necessarily the stories the way we do with your pieces, with Shep's pieces, with, uh, you know, that imagination of, of telling a tale?
3: Well, you know, I think part of it has to do with, you know, what motivates you to, to take up the, the sculpting tools or the paintbrush or whatever else to start on any particular figure in the first place. You know, I mean, for a lot of people nowadays, it's because they see a really beautifully sculpted kit. Um, they say, gee, I'd love to get my hands on that. And I'd love to paint that with me. I'm just, I'm just con my wife's always teasing me because I'm always reading. I mean, I'm just a voracious nonfiction reader. And by nonfiction, I really mean history because that's really Mm -hmm. virtually all I read. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I figured a lot of books I'll read over again. And while I'm reading the, the stories and the little, um, Subplots and the, the the things that you can read between the lines, reading about military history in particular, getting beyond the high level strategy and all the all of that stuff, but then trying to also understand the ordinary soldiers and what their lives might have been like and what they might have looked like uh, and how that might be conveyed in miniature is just something that's just gradually gotten fused into my kind of creative consciousness and so when I start a figure I, I usually have a, a plan as to why I want to do it and it usually has less to do with the colors in the uniform than it does with the background of who this guy is where he is and why should I do him why should I why should I do this figure and uh there's a story to be told with that. And they're little stories. I mean, these aren't usually huge stories. These are just quiet little stories of each guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of them are pretty straightforward. You know, this guy's attacking in battle or he's being wounded or he's being carried off the field or whatever else. But a lot of them are, you know, this guy's got sore feet because he's been marching the whole, you know, all day uh, in the hot sun. So he's stopping and he's taking his shoes off and he's rubbing his feet. I mean, very human, little human things. And, and, um, uh, it, uh, you know, when you do as many figures as I do, Jim, and I'm I prob- I'm probably well over a thousand now. You're always looking for new. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're, you're always looking for new perspectives on yeah. how you can yeah. how you can do some subjects that you've maybe done either done identically before, or done things similar, but you're trying to now take a different a different uh, twist on the on that same uh, that same topic.
0: Yes. Yeah, well there's so many things that people point out that they first saw you do, you know, the ramrod. Holding, you know, uh, you know, the 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 complicated process of loading one of those uh muzzle loaded uh, uh rifles and stuff like that. Um but there's always a story even in your single figures and that's one of the things that inspires Barry and me. So we we have a bunch of geek out Questions. You know, okay. in the, Win- the Windrow and Green book, you do a really yeah. excellent job of explaining sculpting, and uh, to a lesser degree, uh, but there's some of it in the Andrea book as well. How have your materials changed? these days what are you even probably since Andrea what are you uh what are you, are you building on the this is a patented Barry phrase what are you uh, fleshing out your haranikins with My <laughs> I, just heard,
3: I just heard in Chicago this year that Marion coined that phrase I found that very amusing actually I think that's brilliant well
0: let's let, let's start with the paper clip and the and the resin torso did you you, you know that idea had been around uh, but, yeah. but you certainly you you taught it to people you well, I didn't people.
3: actually I didn't didn't really start with a resin torso when I first started doing my my original figures the earliest ones they were essentially um air multi-pose figures that mm. were plastic that were really just carved down and I remember mm. walking into dinner one night and showing my wife my thumb where just by holding it between my thumb and the, the crook of my forefinger and then using the knife to to carve the plastic off because the multi multipose plastic is very much like hysterex plastic, really soft. Mm-hmm. But still, yeah. I mean, you're cutting through it with a really sharp knife. And my yeah. thumb, my thumb would just be like, it would look like, sh- it was like shredded to ribbons. I mean, I didn't mm-hmm. draw off yep. blood. But <laughs> this, there was no yep. blood, but I mean, the surface layer was just like literally you could see just like all these vertical serrations in it. And so I would generally carve them down to mannequin shape, and I would use some toothpicks, but I had to be careful because back then I, I used a Dremel tool, but it was such a high speed Dremel tool. I was always, I didn't have a controller on it, so I, I didn't have the ability to modulate it. So I couldn't just drill into that soft plastic without just melting it. So I had to use like a, a manual drill if I was going to create an arm. And I you know I was lazy back then. I was still kind of cautious about what I was going to do myself. I mean, I tried to use things that were already done. If I could find an arm that was already made. And all I had to do is just, you know, do something with the sleeve on it. Then I just try to use it. You know, later I just completely dropped that, but I mean, I kind yeah. of gradually evolved into it. And then the resin, the resin torsos and uh, parts really um, only came into play years later. I mean, I would essentially use an Airfix multipose, multi-pose, you know, pelvis, and a torso that I would carve down and then just use those. And then I would start using two, you know, the paper clips with those. And then after a while, I developed a lot of friends who were into casting and I would kind of lean on them a little bit. Uh, it would sure be nice if you could cast up some (laughs) some parts for me. And, uh, and they said, well, sure. I'd be happy to. What can can you do for me? And I said, well, I can, I can, I'll, I'm going to do some little master. We had a guy out here in California, Brad, uh, Brad uh, was his name. And, uh, I told Brad I was going to do a bunch of uh, uh, Franco-Prussian War parts, and, a, and I was going to kind of let it be known they were available. And anything that Brad wanted to sell, that was his. I mean, I was, as long as I could get some, uh, he, yeah, gets, yeah. And he actually made a decent amount of money off those hmm. for a while. Wow! <laughs> but he so also, you don't
0: you don't cast your own?
3: No, I, I just I never got into casting. I mean, if I had a gun to my head, I could probably do it. But uh, mm. you know, it's kind of a smelly. Uh, annoying business. And I've just never, I've never really had to do it, but, you know, Brad hasn't been really in the picture for a long time. I've used up all those parts for the last two years. I've just been making my own pelvises and torsos out of a and B putty just on a yep. block of wood and just using those. So I don't mm. even need to really use that. I mean, the only difference is the the size, size of each one, you know, has a little bit of variation, but I just, I just adapt the, the scale of the, of the rest of the sculpting to the, um, you know, to any subtle differences there are in bulk or anything else, but mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah, the whole res, the resin, uh, you know, Heraniken, you know, kind of evolved from an air, a carved down Airfix multi-post figure to eventually what you see now in a lot of the step-by-steps that I've done. Yeah,
2: mm.
0: Joe Burton is still doing that. I, I, you know, if there's one thing I'm gold at, and it's the only thing I'm gold at, I, I, I cast a mean torso and pelvis. <laughs> I just got, I get in the, I get in the, the zone, and suddenly uh-huh. I have forty. You know, uh, uh, and they're done. Uh, and it is sticky and it's a little smelly but you know you well, know, I'll have to or... I'll have
3: to contract with you Jim <laughs> so I'll, I'll send I... some documents over for your team oh, or you lawyer to look at
0: <laughs> I've been trying to convince Joe Burton how much easier it would be to get rid of the air fix idea yeah. but he's still wed to that but, but the, um, uh, so, so these days you're mixing the Duro with, the uh, A and B or what exactly is your second part? You know, yeah, we, I mean, we discovered... I've
3: always, I, I used to be that I, I mixed, uh, I, I always did my foundations underneath the figures. Um, once I started going to the Horanikins, as, you, as you're you calling them, um, I always did the foundational stuff with A and B because A and B dries really hard, you know, I mean, it's like a mm-hmm. rock, you know, um, but, and the a and the duro i always say it kind of dries to the consistency of hard tire rubber which i think is a pretty good analogy mm-hmm, yeah. um but but it's it's carvable it's not really perfect for sanding you can smooth it out a little bit but years ago um i, I used to, i mean i used to do everything in just all my clothing i used to do in straight duro and if you look at yeah. some of the early sculptures that i photographed you could tell just by the by the, that mid kind of glossy green color that that's just straight up Duro yeah. or not Duro. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Duro. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Duro. Um, yeah. But years later, Andre, Andrea, Andrea Yoti, uh, Italian modeler friend of Fabio's came over here to visit us. And Andrea is really known for his horses. He's an outstanding horse sculptor mm-hmm. and uh, also a very interesting guy. I mean, he's a, he's a veterinarian. So he, he literally lives on a farm and he tends the cattle, in the mm. Parma region, which means he's tending the cattle that are producing Parmigiano Reggiano. That's, that's, <laughs> that's
0: making our cheese. Yeah. <laughs> that,
3: that, that's, and, and I'll tell you, when you go to when you go to one of those farmers houses with houses with him and, I, and Heather and I have done that. I mean, he's a member of the family, man. This is a really important guy to these families because he's literally yeah. keeping their livelihood going.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, um,
3: just the way a race car driver would uh, would be very, uh, very protective of his pit crew. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. Andre is that guy. And Andre asked me, have you ever tried mixing A&B and Duro? And I said, gosh, you mean like mixing peanut butter and chocolate, man? Uh, I never even thought of it. And he said, <laughs> I do it all the time. And it's really good because it gives you the benefits of both of them. And so I started right. doing that more and more. Lately, I've kind of scaled it back, though. I, I've come to the conclusion that the A and B Duro mixture is really good for some things, but not. I mean, clothing-wise, but not for everything. Um, mm-hmm. I find that uh, that that jacket sleeves and things like that uh, are better if they're mixed with just the tighter slightly stiffer straight up duro mixture rather than the softer and a little bit gooier uh a and b duro mixture but if you're doing trousers uh where you're going to need to really maybe use a paintbrush to get more subtle drapery then the, the the two mixed together it's golden yeah so, again, it's just kind of mixing them. And, I, you know, a lot of people say, well, why aren't you using this putty? First, it was like, years ago, it was like, well, why are you using Milliput? Everybody's using Milliput. Now it's like Magiscope. Why are you using Magiscope? Yeah. And, I, and on, I said, you know, they're all pretty good, and if I couldn't get the putties that I'm doing, that I've always used, I'm sure I would, and I'd probably figure it out, but why why change when it's working I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean there's a whole bunch of different ways to get a really good sculpture you know i mean right, and right. Well, it, the the thing is it's not just the material it's every material comes along with subtle differences in the technique you need to use uh, to make them work yeah. and you you can't just get, say hey this is a nice material you have to then become acquainted with how best to make it do what you want it to do, and um, if you've got already a, a material and a technique that you've kind of perfected to a certain extent, uh, you know, you know, there has—I think there has to be a good reason to just throw that, that out and start it. with something else. That's yeah. a
0: good point. Yeah, but that's probably our problem, Barry. You and I are, are, are always too enamored of trying, you know, Magiscult versus Aves versus, like, oh, let me go back to the A and B. It's like I, we I, should just concentrate well, for, for on something. For me, I'm always worried.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm always worried about getting into some material that is going to disappear. And uh, like for a while there, Duro disappeared. I don't know if you've... Yeah. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and then I can't remember who it was, picked it up and started making it again, but...
3: Yeah, a tight, I think, is who makes it now, but now you can get it on Amazon, you can get it anywhere. Yeah, it's... You can
1: it's get it anywhere. Yeah, well, the, the fantasy
0: people discovered it, you know, yeah. selling it in these little tiny ribbons. But but yeah. speaking of sticking with something, Bill, uh, uh, you know, so you were out there having a chat with Dennis Levy and Greg DeFranco uh, uh, at the MMSI show and talking about yeah. Humbrals.
2: <laughs> and... Yeah. Scarlet
0: oh, and the the formulas changing, oh, uh, and, and and you know, and yet you stick, you stick with the enamels.
3: Yeah, you know, and I, it, you know, there I go through periods. It's just such a love hate relationship, you know, because um, for years, you know, Humbrels. When we talk about sculpting materials being very much uh, associated with a particular technique,
2: mm-hmm.
3: paints are like three times that. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you can't paint in the same using the same process with acrylics that you can with oil paints. I mean, you have to basically, um, perfect an entirely new painting regimen and yeah. painting stop not so much style, but a regimen and a procedure. And, uh, you, you have to certain things take longer or shorter adapting to faster drying times or slower drying times i used to kid the guys who painted in oils years ago i said part of the part of the benefit of oils is that they take so long to dry but that's also the curse people can't stop freaking around with them you know mm-hmm, i mean yeah they just keep rubbing them and rubbing them and rubbing them until eventually they've taken the five or six different shadow colors and the three or four different highlight colors and now all you see are two colors because mm-hmm, they yeah. just kind of like it can't stop blending them you know and And uh, acrylics is just the opposite. Everything dries so instantly that you, you have to figure out a way to replicate shading without really blending. And that's the, that's a very, I mean, I'm sure I could do it if I wanted to, but a lot of people think I'm patient. I am not patient.
2: <laughs> uh, I,
3: I, I know what I want. I know how long it should take to get it. I don't mind if it takes a little longer for one reason or another, but I get bored if things aren't getting there within a time that I think is a reasonable amount of time because I want to keep moving. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, humbrils have gotten really complicated because with all of the, uh, with all of the changes, the air quality changes that have affected things like thinners and, paint products and aerosols and the the, the re- removal of lead from us from so many paints and and all of that i mean i literally went to the hardware store like three years ago i used to always buy just a big old can of regular old paint thinner that's what i used to use for my humbrels for years for 25 years 30 years and i brought it home that night and i poured it in my little my little bottle when i was painting and i went to put a little bit of it into my Humbrel paint and it just like it's just like ossified. I mean, it's just like, hmm. what happened? Is, is there water in here? It's like, it was like I put, it just didn't work anymore. And hmm. I, I didn't have any explanation for why that was. Uh, and so now I have to go to Michael's to get like a, a special little bottle of some kind of a paint thinning. And even that doesn't work perfectly all the time. And then we've got this wildly changing uh, consistency with the, with what used to be tried and true Humbro colors for a while, Mm -hmm. they thinned them out. And I think they were trying to make them a little more accessible to guys who wanted to use them for airbrushing. Yeah, uh, which was just stupid because humbles are just not really well intent, well purposed for that. No. Um, but they made them so thin that they then weren't opaque enough. They wouldn't co- cover anymore. You had to use multiple, sh- multiple layers. And then for a while, it seemed like they were kind of coming back. They were everything was OK. And I mean, then they, they changed the companies changed hands a few times. It's. I mean, the bottom line is now I use now I use not only Humbrels, but I try to keep in reserve a certain amount of testers and Model Master and mm. and uh, I, I, and even some oil paints. I mean, there are some oil paints that I use that that do actually dry pretty matte if you're careful about how you use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, I'm just, I can't quite get rid of the humbles, but uh, yeah, they're definitely a case of the devil you know versus the devil you <laughs> <don't> know. <laughs>
1: they're, they're definitely not the same paints that uh, they were in the 70s, because no. the, those uh, were magical paints. I, you could just put a, one coat down and it was just beautifully flat and perfect. opaque. Yeah.
3: And and predictable and reliably so. Yeah. And now they're not reliable. I mean, I literally, yeah, the story that I was telling Greg and everybody is I was trying to do this figure for Joel and I was a red coat and I had, you know, I had all the paints I needed. Um, and I literally dipped into one of them and I didn't even stir it up. I just kind of dipped into the bottom of it, just got the thick, you know, bottom pigment, which is always reliably matte just so I could put a base coat on. And I put the base coat on, came back about a half hour later and it was like I just put it on. It was still like semi-gloss. And mm. I got the hair dryer. I'm like, what the hell happened? So I mixed it up again. Then I brushed it on the side of the block of wood to see if it was the same thing. And I said, oh, crap. So I opened up another one. Same thing. Another one. Same thing. Another one. Same thing. Then I found a bottle of uh, of uh, <laughs> I think it was Testers uh, bright red, which is a great color, by the way. But And I've not had too much trouble with that. Same thing. Couldn't get that one to dry flat either. And it's like OK, well, this guy's got to look like literally he's jumped in a vat of tur- some <laughs> kind of a vat of lacquer or something unless I figure mm. out. Because the mat clears, the Humbrol mat clears never really work very well. They yeah. always kind of give you like a cloudy look. So I was at my wits end. But then I realized Rick Taylor out of the blue up in up in Canada has been like messaging me from time to time saying, hey, Bill, I, I found a whole big supply of old do you Do you need any? And I said. Well, geez, Rick, that's a silly question. I always need, I always need humble He said, great. He said, I, I said, are, are you, are you, can you, what do you got? And he said, and he said, I got a whole bunch. This was before I had this issue with the red. He put them in the mail to me. And I was having all of this problem, this trouble. And then the next day, this little package arrives. And I said, oh, please God, let there be a red in here. <laughs> and there were like four of the old Humbril reds. And that was literally like the last day I could have gotten them. And still had a chance to finish that figure and I got it and I was able to do it. So it was amazing. So I <laughs> and then on top of it, Greg Greg DeFranco and I were talking the, when we were in Chicago about how about how he's got Humbrel paints that he's been using opening up and using for the last 15 years. And he's never had a problem. And I said, "Now, don't tell me you're one of these guys who keeps a little hammer next to his table. And <laughs> mm-hmm, every time mm-hmm. you open it, you paint a little bit and then you put it back and you use the hammer. To Greg says, well, of course, Bill, uh, doesn't everybody do that? And I said, F <laughs> you, F you, Greg. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: I have to admit, I I do that, and I have. I some, do that, yeah. I have some Humbrol tins that were manufactured in the '70s that are oh still usable. Oh my God! Well,
3: I'm eating my heart out. <laughs> I, I'm just see the thing is because I I paint for such long stretches at a time, and I have so many paints that I'm using simultaneously that it's just not practical to constantly being opening and closing them all the time. Um, yeah. So what I'll do is, as long as I'm painting, they're all open. And then at the end of the day, I used to be very religious about closing them all up pretty carefully, not with a hammer, but at least as well as I could with my fingers. But lately, I've gotten lazy, and it's not uncommon for me to go to bed without and forget to to close up the paints. And then eventually, they'll get a shell over the top of them. I got to kind of punch through. But you know, for years, even that was okay because that little shell essentially protected them. And I was painting so rapidly, I was still getting three and four figures out of one little tin of flesh uh, or a tin of black or a tin of white or whatever else but with the declining quality of humbrils uh they they just deteriorate so quickly now and the quality even when you first open them you're not quite sure what it's going to give you um it's really made for a frustrating i got a figure that i'm working on right now that i'm dealing with the same issues you know I'm i'm just trying to figure out a way to work my way through it but Used to be in years past, we didn't have just Humbrol. Many years ago, we had Airfix as well, yeah. and uh, Airfix was was really good. Of course, they're long gone. Um, but uh, even testers used to be pretty good. Uh, but they have such a limited range of matte colors. Um, they have a pretty good flesh, uh, but uh, and they have a very good bright red when it dries flat. But anyway, enough well, of model, model, right? model masters went
1: away too. Model masters went away. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Pactra used to be the, the American humbrawl. Do you remember Pactra? Oh, yeah. yeah I Pactra
3: was Pactra good, too. too. Yeah, Pactra yeah. was good. They were easier
0: to open. They yeah, had oh, to open. Yeah, oh, yeah. A little square. <laughs> <talk. laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, Bill, the the uh, above and beyond. Uh, if the day that Humbrel disappears and you're forced to go acrylic, yes. it, it would be. We, I think we'd all be interested to see what the results are. But above and beyond it, you know, Barry and I have have said it seems like there is, uh, you know, there are essentially two styles dominating the hobby as far as painting today. You know, there's you and Mike Blank is is of that school. You know. Uh, uh, You know, realistic flat colors, uh, dirt uh, on soldiers who would be very dirty. Um, You know, and then there is uh, the European style that continues to grow and blossom and many people are shifting styles trying to be more like the europeans you know to me it almost sometimes seems a comic book uh and not 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 as an insult uh but the colors are so vibrant and so over the top and we so rarely see you know we can have a crusading night who has, you know, no mud on, on his, uh, white tunic. <laughs> you know? And, and it's, uh, what, what do you think, you know, because as a judge and as an observer at all these shows and, and as a critic, as well as an artist, what, what do you think about that? Is it well, just a matter of taste?
3: Well, it's not, it's, it's actually really not a, it's really not a new, uh, dis, you know, uh, it's really not a no, new no. difference, I remember when um, when I first went to Euro Militaire in 1988, I think it was, 87, excuse me, um, I was stunned by just how kind of like almost fluorescent some of the European figure painting styles were, and, and also really high contrast. I mean, yeah. a, a huge difference between the highlights and the shadows, I mean, they really just weren't realistic at all. And um, you know, I, I mean, I, I always felt that when you were doing a figure, part of the part of the fun, and this probably goes for really any genre, is you you kind of love that little subtle cat and mouse game you're playing with the viewer, where when they first look at a figure or they look at a, a good photograph of a figure that you've done, you want, for one moment for there to be be this brief moment that they're looking at something real um, that you've kind of tricked them into believing. And then of course they, they quickly come to their senses and realizes, Oh, this is the model, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that you're trying to tell a story about a real person, and I guess we get back to story here. You're trying to st- tell us a, a little miniature story about a, a human being that's in a particular place at a particular time involved in a certain act or in a certain uh, activity and you want it to look like you you want there to be some sort of sense of reality that, that you've created to it and I think to to some extent it kind of goes back to why are you in the hobby at all I mean some people get into painting because they just like They just like the colors. I mean, they just Mm -hmm. like how colorful it is. (laughs) I mean, that's why so many guys got into Napoleonics, in my opinion, because they just love all the pomp and pageantry and the colors of all that. Mm -hmm. But part of the fun for me was always to take that same thing and then kind of tip it, tip it sideways by taking that guy who was really colorful and say, okay, what is he going to look like when he's been out marching on dusty, dirty, muddy roads for three weeks and hasn't been able to change his clothes. And to me, that was the fun thing. When then was to take, was to kind of, as Chickert used to say, the mustard off the hot dog and, and mm-hmm. basically to show what the reality would be like for those same guys. But the whole idea, I, again, a lot of guys just can't bring themselves to kind of create any kind of dirt or or grime or dust or weathered effects because they, they just don't want to ruin the beautifully shaded colors they put on. They're really proud of that. And they're afraid that if they do it, they'll screw it up. Mm. And they'd rather just leave it alone. So you'll see invariably those that that painting style you'll see like a little like afterthought of a little dry brush dust on the tip of the boots or something some <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, he, yeah he's dirty look at the you look at the side of his boot there's a little bit of dry dry, dry brush yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> but no seriously i'm talking about weathering i mean when i when i was uh really starting to come up you know basically attend the the show circuit back in the eighties, Brian Stewart uh, lived out here. Barry, I think you might've, you might've met Brian. I'm not sure if he's before your time.
1: I think I did. Um,
3: Brian was a really innovative guy as far as weathering goes. And I remember Brian painted in oils, which was really remarkable because Brian had the ability to use oils and to work earth tones into his brighter colors or purer colors Work them in as part of the blending process and basically to discolor brighter, more vibrant colors to make, to give a sense of wear to the color itself. So when you looked at it, it looked dusty or dirty, but it it wasn't something that was put on after he painted it or shaded it it was integrated into the, the basic painting process. Mm-hmm. And that, that same technique was exactly the kind of thing I I was doing with Humbrils. We were using different mediums, but we were very much kind of working towards the same end. And that's the, I think that's one of the keys is the guys who really are more focused on getting a, an earthier, uh, more weathered, realistic campaign look to their figures you'll you'll the way that is really achieved usually is just by integrating that from square you know from square one right into the right into the painting process yeah,
1: yeah it makes a yeah, huge it's a difference much, it's
3: to... as much
0: it it does yeah. yeah yeah um Barry you had a question about posing
1: yeah that yeah, yeah really so talking about the storytelling um you mentioned in one of your books that you uh you studied theater in college yeah and uh and that and that kind of uh affected how you see painting faces with the theatrical makeup you said you were especially interested in oh but, yeah but i don't know that i've ever heard you mention the the poses because your poses are very much what i would expect uh an actor would would be able yep. to to see because you exaggerate the poses in certainly not unrealistic ways, but they're exaggerated to the point that there's no question what they're doing as if an actor is, 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 and as if the figure is an actor. Well,
3: it's, I mean, that's right on the money, Barry. I mean, these, these bases we put these guys on, what are they, but little stages, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what are the, what are the figures on them, but little actors standing alone on a stage, you know, Mm -hmm. for all to see. I mean, they're basically on their own little stage there's no, there's no uh, curtain there, uh, but they've got the stage. They're front and center. They're there to basically attract your attention. And, to, and they have something to say. I mean, it's not a big, long soliloquy, but hopefully they're telling you a little bit, little bit about themselves and what their experience is. But, but yeah, the whole idea of an actor posing or actor striking a pose or actor being caught in a particular pose on a stage... Exactly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. exactly what I try for with my figures, but I don't think it's just me. I think a lot of other uh, modelers do the same thing. I certainly Shep did that. Yeah. There was always a theatricality in Shep's, in Shep's uh, single figures, as well as, of course, his dioramas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very much, uh, very carefully staged and blocked and uh, and uh choreographed uh for to create a, a sense of composition and composition isn't something that you just do with dioramas or vignettes i mean composition is important with a single figure i mean how is he arranged on the base what's his best angle i mean mm-hmm. when i put the guy on the base with the nameplate in front i've chosen that angle very carefully uh and sometimes it means drilling holes in the base and and then redrilling them about uh, a 64th of an inch over to mm. one side or angled to one side or another. Um, and then because the wire sticks out the bottom of the guy's feet, that means that they may be tipping up a little bit or down on one side. Well, I want that guy to be leaning a little more, so I've got to bend that. So he's, again, this is all, it's literally like a director or if he could pick up an actor and, set, and lift him up and yep. carry him over to a spot <laughs> on the stage and say, there, nope pull that, pull your front leg forward a little farther. Yeah. Just like that. Okay. Now lift your head up a little bit. No, now turn it a little to the right. That's exactly what you're doing with a yes,
2: exactly yeah the same thing. Mm-hmm.
3: And I, and I think, I, I think that's one of the things that I think, um, it's one of the things I, I mean, Mike Blanc is outstanding at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike Blanc has been one of the best, uh, he and I, one of the things we love talking about is composition. And, um, Mike in fact, we've talked about composition so much. I mean, I, I, I even had one case where I dared to question one of his compositions and I said, Mike, I'm only going to say this because you know how much I love your work. And I would never say this, the, the, the only reason I'm saying this is because you and I can know with absolute certainty that we both, you know, love and respect and admire each other. I said, I don't get the composition on this. And he had done this little figure, this little three-figure scene of Napoleon. Mm. It was at MFCA a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And he had Napoleon in the front right corner, just a small base, maybe three inches square. He had Napoleon like in a little camp tent standing in the front of the base directly angled away from the people behind him. So he was like looking off this corner of the base with his arms crossed, looking to nobody. Stern look on his face. And then behind him, there was a desk and then there was another guy writing. And then next to him, there was another guy who was looking at a piece of paper. And it was like, what's happening here, Mike? I don't get this. And he says, well, um, Napoleon has just given the order to so-and-so to write out, which will eventually start the Battle of Jena or something, whatever it was. And I said, well, how could you get that from looking at it? And Mike looked at, me. <laughs> Mike, Mike looked at me and said, hey, man, that's what the collector wanted. And that's what I gave him. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, why didn't you just say that? If you would have just said that, I would have yeah. said, okay, everybody's <laughs> got to make a buck. I some- <laughs> Well,
0: well the- Mike and I, you know, Barry and I keep trying to play with, uh, you know, get, get Mike away from his pyramid. He is so... Yeah devoted to those triangles. And you know, well, you know there are other but, but shapes that work, Mike. <laughs> but but you know, there's, a, there's
3: a postscript to that too, because the collector, I think it was Alec Dawson, was the guy who had this idea. Yeah. Alec's good guy. He was the one who commissioned my San Luana diorama that I had at Chicago this year. And he called me up and he he had this idea, which was uh kind of an obscure, uh, you know, maybe apocryphal story from the latter stages of the battle of Isamuana because all these guys died there was nobody really around and they were Mm -hmm. only verbal accounts you know oral accounts that were given by surviving Zulu warriors years later told to white historians who they they maybe kind of wanted to tell them what they wanted to hear you know so you're not really quite sure whether they're telling the whole story or they've just kind of given like the cover story but Um, And he said, this scene was like, these guys all knew they were going to die. They grouped together on the hillside, and then they all shook hands just before they charged down. And having all these guys up here shaking hands just before they charged to their desk, that would really be a great scene. And I said, well, yeah, that's a great story and I said pretty boring doing a scene with a bunch of guys standing around in a circle shaking hands though <laughs> yeah and, and, and he said and he said, well yeah yeah I don't yeah how would we handle? how would we handle that And I said, well i I would handle it this way <laughs> and, I, and I and I said, for one thing you you got to create the impression that there's danger there, you know I mean you have to have a Zulu. Probably a dead Zulu, like in the scene, so you know that there are Zulus down below them, and then you'd have to kind of create through the expressions and the 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 staging of the scene this sense of danger or impending danger or doom that's surrounding these guys. And you've got their cartridge boxes that have been taken off and thrown to the ground because they're empty. They're about to charge to their deaths, and so you'd have to so you'd have to have that sh- handshaking going on but maybe it's not just handshaking. Maybe it's a guy putting his hand on the shoulder of the guy next to him. And that was his way of saying goodbye or, or, uh, you know, or some other, some other thing. So it, it's kind of a, it, it's kind of, and that's what kind of Mike and I were talking about. Sometimes, you know, a, a guy's got a good idea, but you've got to turn it into a story that you don't necessarily need to be a, a, a guy who's conversant and obscure Zulu war oral accounts to be able to understand, because you probably not have a guy at the single show who knows any of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's
0: gotta, it's gotta translate. Yeah, exactly. It's gotta read. Yeah. Well, you know, so uh, two things bringing together the, uh, the, the theatrical company idea. And, uh, you mentioned the expressions on the faces. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, Joe and I just were marveling at when we were, uh, cleaning out Shep's basement was the cast white lead uh faces you know he had sculpted a good uh fifteen or twenty uh heads for his hundred millimeter uh characters he called them in his boxes and uh and you would see you would see the powder monkey from the victory show up again in the monitor <laughs> you yeah, know of course, and these yeah. guys you know but bill it's always fascinated me uh how much you do. Uh, starting with a, a a cast head that somebody else did, uh, yeah. and I, I, I've just always wondered why you you. Uh, I mean, they always look like Bill Haran faces, but but you've never, and you're such an excellent sculptor, but you you haven't done uh, the cast of Bill Haran's twenty heads. No,
3: no, I, I don't. it you know, it's kind of funny. I've never really had the desire to get into really. Commercial casting in any way. I've I've been kind of like strong armed into doing a couple of things that I kind of regretted because it just doesn't lend itself to what I really like to do. But I usually start off with an existing head. And then, I mean, some of the figures that I do, I pretty much use the Hornet, Hornet head straight up. And then the next one I do, I might start with a recognizable hornet head and I might look back a year later and I honestly can't remember which one I started with because I've changed so much. I, I just can't get my head around it. And But the problem is also that stockheads have so many of the, the heads using hornet as an example, you know, and Roger Saunders is such an outstanding sculptor and his faces are so lifelike and so realistic, uh, but he's gotten, so he also does a lot of them that are, you know, maybe a little more caricature ish uh, nowadays. Mm -hmm, Uh, But he's got such a great roster of, of, uh, you know, heads that you don't have to dwell on the few that you don't like all that much. There's something there pretty much for everything or at least there's something you can start with. And uh, the biggest thing I, I find is the eyes because Um, For the most part, virtually all the figures have eyes that are pretty narrow and um, brows that are, you know, there's some variety. But if you really want to get more animated expressions, you have to be prepared to not just rework the eyes, but you've got to frequently rework the brow. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, you know, the noses have to be done sometimes if you're doing a personality or whether you just want a nose that's a little more prominent and distinctive, you know, and then of course, obviously facial hair and all that kind of stuff. And then adding teeth, maybe you want to have a guy shouting a little more loudly. You're going to have to carve the mouth open a little more, create a little more of a a chin, you know, all of that stuff. And then frequently you you may have to redo the ears because you want, maybe you want the ears to be a little more prominent. It's one of the things I got, I found when I was doing baseball players, uh, looking at photographs of baseball players in the 1920s was, it reminded me of how how distinctive a characteristic ears can be to human beings. You know, -hmm. some people just flat out have ears that stick out a little bit and others, you can't see them at all. They're just like flat up against their head. But I guess the answer is you, you have to be prepared to do a variety of different um, characteristics, facial characteristics. And once you get, so you're comfortable doing that, then you just sort of decide well what do i want to change here uh do should do i need to change i don't change things just to change them i i usually change them because i'm always looking to how they'll look when i'm painting them too i'm, I'm very much sculpting to paint so mm-hmm. i i want to make sure that i have eyes that are the right size and shape so when i paint them the expression will be what i want it to be Whereas if I was just sculpting them, I really wouldn't be that concerned about that. That would be somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. I just want want the figure, want the face to look good. Um,
1: so, so when you do these conversions with the faces, you or when you modify them, do you still use the duro to do that?
3: Yeah, always duro. I, I rarely <laughs> use A and B um, and duro mixture for faces, unless I unless i I've, I've really got some major surgery, and that's really rare. I try to avoid mm-hmm. that. Um, I, so I, I have done it. I, I have done it, especially when I'm trying to do a lightness. Um, mm-hmm. but for the most part, see that, I mean, the thing that Duro is, so one of the things that's so great about Duro is that it has, it has so much flexibility and how stiff it can be or how supple it can be. Mm-hmm. You, you don't need to mix the hardener and the resin equally, which is just gigantic. Cause if you don't get them equal with A and B, it it won't dry hard. It'll be sticky. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be very, when you mix up your two little balls of A and B, you got to hold them next to each other and make sure that they're pretty darn close to even to make sure it dries right. Well, you don't need to do that with Duro. So, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people run into problems with Duro because they get wrapped up in that. But I mean, I'm probably mixing maybe 35% blue and 65% yellow or maybe even less blue. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a softer, more supple, uh, material. But if I want to do something where I want sharper lines or a little more crispness, I can put a little more blue in it and it'll be a little stiffer and a little crisper. Um, so I can make little changes to it without even changing material. It's the same material. It's just Mm a a slightly different, different way it's mixed up.
1: So the problem I've always had, and we've discussed this a little bit, but I'll, I'll try to, um, modify something with duro and i can't get it to stick yes
0: yes yes and then it it becomes easier to sculpt your own head even (laughs) though it takes five attempts to get one that looks halfway human yeah i mean sometimes
3: you can put like a little speck of like super glue down to at least get the the ball to adhere but i find generally that when you're trying to put a a tiny amount of, of duro into an area your best uh you're best getting it adhered to whatever you're going to sculpt it onto right after you mix it because even though it won't dry really for a while it'll it'll draw it'll it'll start to harden from the outside in and as it starts to harden from the outside in that means that the outside no longer has the tackiness that it needs to stick and that's the biggest problem i mean i find that when i'm putting buttons on and things like that i might mix up I might put the first three or four buttons on and the fifth and sixth are a little harder to get to stick, stick it after that. It's like, well, screw this. I need to mix up some more because I just can't get them to, to attach anymore. I, I do all my buttons in burrow too. So, yeah. But oh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's true. Yeah. You can't, you can't like mix it up and then like go to the bathroom or go down and get a beer or, or stop and watch the football game for a few minutes, then come back 20 minutes and pick up your, still seemingly wet bit of duro and then start adhering it to a face because then you'll find it won't work then Um, (laughs) you got to do it right away that's why that's why i tried it over the years i've tried to mix my duro in smaller portions or bigger portions depending on what i'm going to use it for If i'm just going to use it for eye sculpting and ears and maybe some facial hair i'll just mix a very small amount of it Uh, and I, I mean, and you look at my work area after I'm done sculpting a figure, I got all kinds of little Blobs of hardened duro that are laying all over the place. You know, those are the the remains of what I didn't use when I did this or that. You know, I I have a garbage can. I just kind of drag my hand over the table, you know, and just kind of scrape them all into my palm and throw them in the trash.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I have a garbage can under my work desk that's got so many little mounds of duro stuck to the bottom of it. It looks like it looks like something out of Aliens, the movie. Oh Um, yeah, I've
3: got them encrusted in my socks and and yeah, yeah, everywhere
0: you know that that business of um, of scale and proportion, uh, yeah. uh, Bill, is something you said when we were on a judging team once. Uh, uh, you know, I, I forget who it was. It, was it you, Barry? Were we both, It was you and me and Bill.
1: Uh, I don't think so. All right, I've yeah, told l- the story. Let's say it was.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, for for argument's sake, you know, and two of us thought Bill that this this sculpt uh, was was really impressive. And you said very subtly, you said, "Look at that guy's nose," and you said, "And look at his index finger." Can you imagine that finger picking that nose? And suddenly the whole piece looked completely different. It was the hand was twice as big as the face, you know? Uh, Um, And it just stuck with me. Well, I
3: appreciate that. I appreciate that story, Jim. But I I don't think that was me that said that. But I wish it was. Yes, yes, yes. No, it
0: absolutely was. And I swear I spent about uh, 10 minutes uh, just staring at the pointing figure in the Iceland Luana uh, uh, diorama you brought this year and just marveling over how perfect those fingers are. And I don't oh. know how you do that with duro because <laughs> oh. even if I managed to get it to stick to the stump of a hand, a finger, then it would it would droop, or I'd never get it to point straight, or oh. I, you know.
3: Well, you know, it, it's i'm 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 kind of i'm kind of disappointed you asked that question because I don't have a ready answer for it. It's really hard to do fingers. I, I mean, I I just it's one of those things I just wished I had a better way of doing it. Um, I. I, it's one of it's one of the things that I probably, as I've gotten older, I agonize more over because increasingly I know exactly the way I want them to look, but trying to get the right degree of knuckle articulation and everything else is just that's just a constant. You, you just have to hope you keep getting better at it. Um, mm. You know, I, I look back at some of my really early figures and I look at the hands and I just go, Oh my God. Um, thank God. Nobody focused too much on those, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And, and because even, I mean, and then I've got other ones over the years that I look back on, I said, gee, I had a good day on that, with that hand, man. Cause that hand is right on the money. Uh, and, but it, it's like, I feel like I'm getting better at it, and then I'll have. I mean, the other night I was working on a figure here, and I I must have spent the whole whole friggin' night fiddling around with one the fingers on one hand grasping the rifle because it was based on a photograph, and the photograph looked so perfect and easy, and I I I should be able to replicate that, and I just could not get it right, and it was like ah <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. but no matter how long you're at this, no matter how long you do this you can always, you can always get better. I mean, there's always something that even if you're doing it pretty good, you can do it a lot better. And it's like, even if nobody notices, somebody asked me, well, nobody will notice that. And I remember telling them I'll notice. Uh Um, And, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm the most important one when it comes to my figures, if I notice it's not right, but I don't care if nobody else notices it, it'll drive me crazy. And, uh, I remember Shep talking with Shep and he said, and one of the nice things he said to me years ago, he said, you know, I I pointed out some little uniform detail on a Victorian figure that I, that I, uh, learned that a lot of people didn't realize. And Shep looked at it and he said, Oh yeah. And he said, he said, well, that's one of the reasons your figures are so satisfying is because there's always this sense that, that you know a little bit more about the subject than everybody else. And so you're kind of taking them on a little bit of a tour of, of you know basically you know you've got it right you know mm-hmm. and doesn't mean you've always got it right but it means you're always trying to get it right
2: mm-hmm.
3: so yeah but fingers are fake there's no there's no there's no secret uh there's no magic decoder ring to how to do fingers right i mean it, the freestanding fingers the, the pointing fingers probably not that hard because you really only have to get the one finger you just got to Screw around with the knuckles to try to make it look about right, um, but when you have the whole hand opened up, that's when you've got a real, you know, challenge. a real challenge. <laughs> and just yeah. well, sit, just sit down and be sit down with a glass of wine or something, and just be prepared to spend some time on it because you you might get it right. Within forty-five minutes, and you might get it right within three days and forty-five minutes. Uh, right,
0: right, right. Well, you know, yeah. but that that alone, uh, Bill, is is uh, encouraging to hear
3: <laughs> because oh, it is, yeah. So it's, mean, it's
0: not just us; it's everybody. Well, no, uh, and, and, you
3: know, when I, I mean, when I'm working on something, there are parts of there are there's parts of producing the figure from sculpting through painting and everything else that I really still love doing. And there are parts that I still really hate doing. Uh, I mean, I, there are there are just little things. There are certain things that I hate to have to paint, but I know I have to paint them. And I know how they're supposed to look when they're done. It's just like, God, I just don't want to do this. It's just so unglamorous. And it's like faces. I still love faces. I still love all the, I still love the tartans. And I love the stuff that's got to be really noticeable. But it's spending all the time you need to spend on, OK, getting the bannets the Bannet frog and painting that or or the or fiddling around with trying to attach uh, a bridle, making a bridle bit and uh, and oh, yeah, painting the yeah. spurs and all the spur leathers and attaching all the reins to a horse. I mean, it's like God, I wish I had a subcontractor I could sub that. Out. <laughs> I would so do it. I mean, I would pay really good money. From 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 the studio
1: of Bill Haran. Yeah, from yeah. Yeah,
3: But I mean, but but I mean, you know, it's all stuff you have to do. I mean, so it's not not everything is fun. um, But you're you're trying to. But you but you can if you really botch those things, you can undermine all the good work that you've done.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know
3: that I remember uh, years ago there was one modeler, big name modeler whose name I will not mention, um, but Mm -hmm. a really really talented guy. And he brought a figure to the show and I was walking around with Shep and he had he had uh, scratch built the figure, but he had painted it and he was showing it as an original figure, even though he technically painted the casting. We were okay with that. Um, It was a casting, but he did sculpt the original. So he had it in the open. That was fine. But the rifle was metal. This was like a 90 millimeter figure. The rifle, of course, was metal because the casting was metal. Well, he polished the barrel of the rifle, which looked beautiful. Nothing wrong with that. Painted the wood stock, all nice. Also, he had also polished the tip of the rifle. So mm. when you looked at the tip of the rifle, there was no hole there where the bullets come out. Mm. All it was was polished metal. And and Shep looked at it and pointed point, I didn't even notice it, but Shep noticed it. Shep pointed it out to me. He says, you know what? I'd knock him from gold down to bronze just for that. <laughs> but course would course his didn't.
0: finger, would his finger, have stuck but in the hole of the rifle? Oh We had
3: such a good laugh over that. Of course, we didn't. That—that's not how it ended up. I think he ended up getting silver or something. But it was just that he'd gone to such care to polish something that's that's supposed to have yeah. a hole in it. You know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, so you said the things that you feel like you have to do, uh, and of course you do to complete, complete the figure. Are there things that we've never seen on Bill Horan's workbench that you're doing just for yucks? Is there an orc? Is there a fantasy figure? No. Is, there, is, there, is there anything that you've done that would blow people's minds that this is Bill Horan?
3: Uh, no, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no strange, bizarre, uh, like uh, subjects that are like lurking in the back here. I mean, I, I've always also, I've always been a guy who can't really focus on a lot of different things at the same time. I never have multiple figures on my workbench at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I, I stick with one until it's done and I move on to the next one. And I, I've, I, the, the few times that I've had to do, multiple figures when I was I know working on the Gandamach diorama or maybe a little on the San Luana diorama there's a little bit of overlap with a couple of figures by a few days. But for the most part, I think that's one of the reasons that's kept me productive is is that I try to focus on the task at hand. I try to finish it and then move on. And my reward for finishing this one is now I get to start a new one. And so mm-hmm. it's there's it's always like there's a next one whereas what happens is I've always felt this and the guys who usually don't have, uh, are good modelers, but don't have very high outputs, frequently they'll have five or six or seven things on their workbench at the same time. And the problem is when you stop and think about it, you know we all run into little snags when modeling. You know, there's some little challenge like I can't get this, I can't get this face to look right, right? You know, or I, I can't get this blue to shade, it's not the right color, I gotta strip it off, or some frustration. So, what happens is then, okay, well, I'll just put this one aside, I'll move over to this one, and then you run into a snag, and pretty soon you've got all these figures that are partway done, and you don't really want to finish any of them then. And so, I, I try to always keep focused on what I'm doing, and um, but yeah, I mean, as far as subject matters go if there's something new and interesting that interests me, I mean, I'll just start doing it. Um, And I did that with baseball, with the baseball players. I mean that was something Mm -hmm. that really captured my imagination back in the nineties. And, and I, I just, I, I don't know why I decided to do a figure. I think the first one I did was the Ty Cobb figure. And then Mm -hmm. the Ted Williams after that, Ted Williams was my dad's idol growing up. And uh, I, I, when I first started them, I thought, God, I have no idea how these are going to come out. I, I don't know whether they're going to be good or bad. But there were so many great photographs of baseball players. And that's what made yeah. it really fun was that I got a chance to see every every player's – I have a lot of photographs of players' individual style. And, of course, the different photographs also served as pretty good reference material, you mm-hmm. know, as well. Mm-hmm. So so yeah unfortunately no deep no big surprises i don't have anything i'm gonna, gonna as, as as uh as cleavon little would say in blazing saddlers there's nothing i'm about to whip out you know so <laughs>
2: well
0: well you know it was, it was a point that uh, michael Contreras made is you know when you're in the fantasy realm you don't have to worry about how many knuckles that finger has you know or whatever
3: <laughs>
0: you're writing the rules you know <laughs> yeah i
3: i remember you know and rest is rest in peace you know we, we lost lost Fletcher this year, which was you know really a tragedy for all of us. But I mean, one of my earliest memories of Fletcher is when he first came on the scene. I remember Bob Knee um, was a judge at the time and Bob was very, basically just a painter to the core. I mean, if you got cornered with Bob at a show Uh, talking about painting, you you know, somebody need to come rescue you, because boy, Bob could talk about alizarin crimson, and and, uh, a lot of the different artist oil colors, and all the things you could, he could talk like all night about like three different paints, and, but he was very, but he was an old marine, and he was very linear in the way he looked at everything, and Fletcher had brought some scene where, a fantasy scene where there were guys on horseback. I think it was like the apocalypse. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember the name of the name of the piece, but he had a couple of horses that had fallen onto the ground, but their, their back legs were backward. In other words, the, rather than the back knee going backwards and then coming forward to the hoof, it was reversed, so they mm. they were they were going in the opposite direction, and, and and so I remember Bob called me over, and we must have talked for fifteen minutes about well, it's a fantasy piece. And I said, well, and he said, well. Well, you know, is there a fantasy world where horses aren't constructed the same way? There might be. And I said, "Well, shit, Bob, you're getting way over my head. I, I I don't know that world, but uh, you know, I mean, I who am I to say?" And I remember that I think Mike, Mike Good, even got dragged into the same conversation. And of course, Mike was, "Oh, I don't care. It's just really cool," and you know, and I, and so we, we were. It was kind of like one of those things. Where we were all kind of like it was kind of like um, some sort of impossible puzzle that you had to had to had to solve. You know, I mean, there, and the 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 right answer was there was no right answer. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> We we could talk to Bill. We could talk to Bill all day, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to keep you from your uh, from your Friday evening, Bill. It's it's uh, it is great getting getting into the weeds with you on some of this stuff. It oh, is, I appreciate
3: yeah. it, uh, yeah. Jim and Barry. It's really nice of you guys to invite me. I, I really enjoyed it too.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, excellent.
3: Thank you, Bill. All right, take care, guys. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. Bye bye.
0: What a pleasure. Uh, we really appreciate. Bill Haran taking the time to talk to small subjects. As always, when we have one of these interviews, uh, Barry, we like to talk about some specific pieces and highlight things that jump out to us uh, in these works. Uh, I talked about the great Gandamak diorama that really put Bill on the map when we did Game Changers. Um, so I have some other picks, but I want I want to have you start off.
1: Okay. Well, this was incredibly difficult because, I, I mean, you look at his books and I could pick a hundred pieces yeah, easily. to talk about. Um, and and I, I think if you ask me tomorrow to pick some, they'd probably be slightly different ones. But,
0: Well, I'm assuming you did what I did uh, and pick some that illustrate different aspects that I, we can talk about.
1: I wasn't that thoughtful or academic about it. I'm sorry. What, oh, I what,
0: bet you were by instinct.
1: Well, what I picked were were a couple of pieces that just have stuck with me, and and I just okay. thought I'm gonna think I'm gonna talk about the first ones that come into my mind that that okay. really stuck with me, and the first. Yeah, well, one...
0: when there's an output of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of brilliant gold medal winning pieces, mm-hmm. that's almost what you have to do. Yeah, you know, it's like open a page, put your finger down. Okay, right,
1: exactly. Um, the the first one I want to talk about was a, a mounted figure that. I first saw in his 2000, no, uh, 1994 book. Uh, Mm. It's an officer of the 16th Lancers. And he's uh, turning around after being slashed by an enemy with his sword, you know, raised like he's going to strike back. And it's such a dynamic pose. The horse and the, the figure are just beautifully posed. There's, there's no mistaking what's happening. And it's, it's, just a lot of action and and just his body language as as Mike blank likes to talk about the importance of body language is i think second to none probably and, yeah
0: it's truly it's truly amazing
1: and, and it's and it it goes along with what one of the things I brought up in the interview about how he is treating them like actors in a way and mm-hmm. I, I and I don't feel like it's it's just across the board what we all do as miniaturists but I think Bill Haran, with his drama background, sees it in that way maybe a little more than most of us, as as actors trying to portray the action that they are uh, doing.
0: Yeah, and and so much of that is done with positioning, but also he is so great at bringing facial expressions uh, that are full of character. He really brings uh, his miniature figures to life. you know, that, that's why I asked him about using stock heads. I mean, I you know, personally, I think it's a little tougher to really take a stock head and uh, uh, fill it full of character yeah. that uh, is different than what the sculptor had originally done. <laughs> right,
1: right. Yeah, it might seem you know. less intimidating to, to most people, but it's very challenging to modify a, a stock head. And I don't remember anybody doing facial expressions effectively before. Bill, do you remember? There were some that were okay, but that's one of the things that really just shocked me about his uh, his figures when I first saw him. Is the well, he took them
0: to another level. Yeah. I mean, Shep's uh, figures, especially those in the box dioramas. Um, you know where he had cast his own white lead pieces. Uh, yeah. After sculpting his heads, they had a lot of character, but um, they were of a different era, and yeah. they were not up to the level of 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 what Bill has done with uh, faces. Yeah. Um, you know, he really took it to the next place. Yeah. And I don't think anyone has taken it further since. Um, you know, we see a lot of great uh, expressive faces, but. Uh, I don't know how much more can be done with a a head, uh, a face, remember, that is smaller than your thumbnail. Right, right. Or really smaller than your tiniest finger. Right. Um, You know, since you started with uh, that—oh, one other point on the 16th Lancers. I don't think he gets enough credit, uh, Bill, uh, for the genius of his horses.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. They are really well done. Yeah, they are. Yeah, he's yeah, up there he, with he, Greg DeFranco as far as uh modifying stock horses to where they look original. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You know, uh same way with those stock heads. Uh uh, you know, he really brings uh cavalry to life. Uh but since you were talking about um uh character, I want to talk about one of his single figures. And again, I could have picked any of hundreds. Um, the British Black Watch, 1781. Uh as always, we'll post pictures of these on the blog on our website, Um, But look at the character in that face. <laughs> you have this guy who is cocky, who is sure of himself, who is, uh, you know, ultra confident that he is in the uh, reigning army on the face of the planet at that point in time. But there's also behind that... The weariness of any soldier in the field.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you know, and and it's uh, uh, somebody on one of our earlier episodes. Maybe you can remind me of who um, was talking about. I think it might have been Joel Glass was talking about how with a single figure between the pose and the character of the face, Bill can tell an entire story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely true.
2: Yeah,
0: I agree. You,
1: you got. You got another one? I do. And <clears throat> I I wanted to I know you're not much of a sports person and I'm not much more of a sports person than you are. I did play some little league baseball, <laughs> but that's uh, a
0: long time ago. I've yeah. never heard you make a sports reference of any current uh professional sporting team type thing.
1: No. I, I I mean my college team just lost the Rose Bowl yesterday, but it was a it was a good showing, but I didn't watch it.
0: I I I was completely unaware of that and I don't follow basketball. <laughs> 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 I, that took you that took you 2 seconds. No, I've I, used
1: that joke many times. I know. I use that joke myself and I love it. I it's one yeah, of my favorites cuz I just get these looks like what are you and I love it. No, I know. I know. We all know that's hockey. <laughs> You're right. But the uh, <laughs> But the the figure I wanted to talk about is uh one of his baseball players, which he started to do in the early two thousands. Yeah, I haven't seen him do do one for a while. But um, no, he did a, a a run there for like a decade of just fantastic yeah. baseball players. And even if you aren't into sports at all, uh, they're they're great figures. The detail painting are, yeah. are fantastic. But the the particular one that I, I landed on was Jan, uh, Johnny Vandermeer. And I don't even know who that is, to tell you the truth. But he's no, obvious, I haven't got a clue. He's yeah. obviously a pitcher because he's in the wind-up for his pitch. And it's just a perfect example of the off-balance, action pose right before the action actually happens. As, as right Chef, before the ball leaves his hand. Right, again. right before he actually pitches the ball. Um, But I think what really struck me about his figures, his baseball figures, uh, in addition to the poses, which are, of course, fantastic, is, like I said, the detail painting. Uh, The first Bill Haran figure I ever saw in person, and I mentioned it, I think, the last episode when I set my my work up right next to his work. Um, Yeah, yeah, bad idea. And uh, the first figure I looked at was one of his baseball players, and I think it might have been this one. Mm. And the detail painting, the little vents on the hat, they're just the little tiny dots that have this embroidered edge around them. They're a vent on top of a baseball hat. I don't know if you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were painted beautifully. This is a tiny detail. This is a, a little speck of dust size of detail. Yeah. And, and the logos on the uniforms, the, the C on his hat are, are just incredibly well done
0: the stitching on the uh cleats. Yeah. Yeah. On the, you know, stuff like that. You know, and and he makes this point in both of his books that often he's not driving himself crazy sculpting a lot of that detail mm-hmm. uh, as with the braid on a hussar's uniform, sure. let's say. Yeah. Uh he paints it. Does it all with paint. Right, right. Uh, as I've said, uh he's an incredible educator in terms of sculpting and posing and the hobby in general. Everything except painting, uh, I, and it's not by uh, uh, him being withholding. I think it's just something magical between Bill Haran, his Windsor and Newton series seven, and his humbrels.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I
0: have no freaking idea.
1: <laughs> I, I still, I still. We're we're in some somewhat of disagreement on this though, and I actually think he does explain his painting process as well as any of us can, because a lot of it. I've had a couple people ask me some questions about painting recently, and it is so incredibly difficult to describe exactly what you're doing. Well, we you, did an episode
0: uh, about that that's going to air soon. Right. Where we're trying to help our sure. buddy Pat Vess yeah. uh, switch from oils to acrylics.
1: Right, right. It, it, it's so tough to do that. And I think sometimes people assume that you're, you're trying to hold back, but it's just... It's it's one of the most difficult things to distill all of these things you just do after years of practice that you've found works into right. a description. Um, but I, I don't think he does a bad job. And I think he's one of the, the better uh, ones at describing a painting process. But I think the biggest problem is how many people paint with humbrals. Now there's approximately one on the planet. Yeah.
0: It's true, since Mike Blank has switched uh, as well. I I don't mean that. I I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's hard. As thoroughly as he's described his process with enamels, it's hard to replicate.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: And the other thing I would love to see is, I don't care how long, four or five hours. uh, He works incredibly fast, so it wouldn't be that long. I would like to see him go from the primed figure... Of something complicated, let's say a hussar, Mm -hmm. to the finish touches of the highlights on Mm -hmm. that braiding.
1: You mean a French, a French hussar,
0: like a French hussar,
1: which is probably not likely he'll do. But, um, no, well, he
0: does every once in a while he does a Napoleonic, yeah. which is one of the things that was so refreshing about his baseball players mm-hmm. uh, was they were completely out of what we had come to expect, and so they were refreshing and different. Yeah. And I want to follow up on that point in a minute. Um, I, I, French usar, I don't care. Some of the British usars are just as as uh, uh, detailed, sure. those yeah, jackets, yeah. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I'm talking about you know, what he does. He must lay down... Uh, a super dark coat first uh, on, on, let's say, uh, a line of braid on a Hussar's jacket, and then uh, subsequently lighter coats to jump out. Because he gives a three-dimensionality mm-hmm. to something, like you were saying stitching on a baseball cap, or or uh, I said stitching on the cleats, or a Hussar's jacket, right? i just love to see how he gets that 3D effect. Yeah, yeah. And actually like really specifically. Yeah, like I want how I many s- how many colors.
1: No, I agree. I want to see how it works from, from start to finish on a on a video. Yeah. I know he has some videos out there, but I, I don't remember one where you can really see in detail what's happening. Yeah. I, I, Maybe I,
0: we can do a, a GoFundMe.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Get built a new braid. Um you know, the other thing, uh, uh, following up on the baseball player, um, you know, there have not been a tremendous amount of Bill Horan, uh civilians. Mm, no. You know, he mm. has focused on uh, primarily, of course, British Imperial, all the eras of British Imperial armies, um, and then there was the baseball players. Here's a question for you. Has Bill Horan ever painted a female?
1: Uh, yeah, he, he
0: has. Because um. I was going through the two books, and I ain't unless i'm missing one and after a while your eyes just gloss over with the glory of of so much
1: you know what i um, think's happened to me is uh the old the old idea of a story being completed in your mind because he has a couple pictures one is a a a highlander leaning over handing a flower to a lady oh okay and that's what i pictured and then i realized oh wait no the the woman's not in that it's just the figure so i <laughs> well and you know I I was coming across a few uh, pictures
0: in uh, in the Windrow and Green book uh, but then I'm looking and it's like oh these are other modelers whose work he's included to show an example of something Uh, well you know hey we'll throw this out to the listenership has Bill Horan ever done a lady what are we missing the fact that they've got to be so remarkably few that uh, for you and I not to be able to name them.
1: Right. No, I, I, I thought of two pieces. The other one was the, uh, the, the soldier with his little child on his shoulders who's come back from Crimea with, without an arm. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And for yeah some but isn't reason, that a boy? It is, but for some reason I pictured, a, <laughs> I pictured a woman in that scene.
0: I don't have to explain the difference to you between uh, boys and girls, do I, Barry?
1: No, Jim, you don't.
0: I, would, that's, I, I that's, look, I, you know, that's,
1: that's not when, just, that's not something that only people from Jersey know about. No, I know I'm kind of a
0: bad <laughs> joke. Um, I was just thinking of my favorite ever, Um uh, the closest I ever got to a genuine compliment from Shep. Um, <laughs> I was bumming out about something about one of my boxes and, uh, You know, he said in that inimitable Shep way, well, just remember, you've actually finished something that uh, Greg DeFranco hasn't even tried. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, yeah. So I just finished my latest box, um, a rear view of a woman ascending a, a set of stairs, and I was thinking about us taping the rest of this Bill Horan episode. I was saying, you know, this may be a bronze... Sculpted and painted uh, woman, but uh, I, I, I don't remember any women Bill Haran did. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta take, you know, when you're when you're uh, uh, still and always aspiring to be better modeler, not a superhuman <laughs> like Bill Haran, Greg DeFranco, or you. You take your uh, you take your victories wherever you can get them. Well, well, I want to talk t- about
1: to be to be fair, there aren't many uh, miniaturists who've done. Uh, historical miniaturists who've done uh, female figures. So, no,
0: there's not. I I, I don't know why they're so daunted. Um, Shep did half a dozen. Yeah. I was thinking of Lady Macbeth and yeah. and people like that. And of course, the uh, fantasy realm is lousy with female figures oh, yeah. in a good way. Yeah, lousy yeah. is a bad word. Uh, I wanted to talk about two other uh, pieces quickly. I guess I cheated and, and chose three, while you chose two. Um, one is casualty of war, Balaclava, eighteen fifty-four. Um, so Shep had a number of mounted pieces that he called trios. Uh, you know, three uh, charging uh, trumpeters, three uh, charging hussars, uh, three uh, uh, cuirassiers uh, devastated by grape shot. Okay, uh, and Bill has a number I noticed of vignettes of. Uh, three single figures Mm -hmm. uh, intertwined together. And in this case, we have a wounded officer, I believe, uh, at Balaclava, and uh, the two uh, enlisted men on either side of him are carrying him, because he can no longer walk, on a rifle that they're each holding Mm -hmm. between them, a musket, a substantial piece of hardware. Uh, And he's got his arms around their shoulders, and He's holding on, he's grimacing in pain, and they are struggling to carry him in this way Uh, was probably the only um, way they could think of. There's no stretchers out there, right? Just the interaction. I was thinking about uh, you and I sculpt with the uh, Horanigan, which he got a chuckle out of, uh, you know, we could also call it the Blanken, you know, I mean, Mike uses this. you know, paperclip wire and, 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 and a few pieces of resin, uh, Mm -hmm. starting a sculpt. Um, you know, the positioning, uh, of those three figures whose interactions are perfect, uh, it's like, wow, I mean, he must have spent quite a lot of time just getting that perfect, which makes sense, because Mm -hmm. so many modelers are so eager to play with the putty, just like you're eager to open your new kit and begin gluing styrene, Mm -hmm. uh, that the genius in that piece is all in intricately getting that uh, pose perfect for three figures. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I like that. It's incredible. I mean, that is... That's probably the best example of a group of figures interacting with each other that I can think of. Uh, That's I, I, way up there. Yeah.
0: He, he has several other trios, which are just yeah. as good.
1: Yeah, yeah. The the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War one, I'm, I'm thinking. Yes. That was uh, the th- a
0: close runner-up.
1: The other thing that really kind of uh, shocked me when I saw him do the demos or the, the, the step-by-step of these was that he will— paint he'll sculpt and paint most of it and then put the last arm in sculpt it and paint it after ever all the other paintings done which it never occurred to me that you could do that that might sound dumb but wow that's that's kind of an interesting way to look at it
0: you know i got there quite some time ago maybe with my nautilus diorama because uh the sailor in the octopus's arm and the other sailors interacting, right, Mm -hmm. uh, was really complicated. So inspired by Bill, I realized, oh, I'm going to get, you know, seven-tenths of this figure together, Mm -hmm. and then I will add the rest, right, so that it's perfectly in place. Uh, But the first time you try that, to have a completed uh, painted figure, uh, minus an arm or a leg, um, you know, in place, and then you're going to add the putty to go in there with the putty after you think you're done, you know. Because the chance of screwing up, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. If not the putty, then the primer. If not the primer, then the final painting, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm not sure I have the guts to do that.
0: Oh, it's, you know, I mean, what's the worst that happens? You screw the whole thing up, and then you start (laughs) over, you know. Right, I'm good at that. Uh, The last piece I really wanted to talk about uh, is really a follow-up to Gandamak. We were talking in in the fantasy realm. Several of the fantasy uh, giants we've interviewed have said, um, you know, they're drawn to fantasy because of more imagination and more storytelling, and Mm -hmm. you're not wed to dates and times and uniforms, right? Mm
3: -hmm. But
0: I, you know, retort that uh, Bill is a damn fine teacher of history. Um, You know, having read Victoria's Little Wars uh, about the British imperial adventures of the uh, 1800s, you still don't really understand uh, the intricacies. Uh, You'd have to read... You know, a hundred books because the Brits were involved in so many imperial colonial wars for a century oh, yeah. there. You know, the particular battles, uh, you know, are seldom written about except in in detail, uh, really, you know, specific history books. Um, the other one besides Gandamak, which, as I said, I had no uh, knowledge of uh, other than the Brits had been in Afghanistan, uh, the drama. Of of what happened there uh, was ghosts of Chilean Walla hmm. uh, from the Second Sikh War, eighteen forty nine. That's that's <laughs> India, heck? right? That's, that's India, yeah. right? I, who knew there was a first Sikh War? <laughs> what is the Sikh War? There's a second one in eighteen forty nine. But, you know, I saw this in the first book, the Windrow and Green book, which we mentioned several times, not to slight the Andrea book, but really Military Modeling Masterclass uh, is, is a beautiful, beautiful book, superior in several ways, although it is it uh, does not have, uh, and maybe has only a third or a quarter of Bill's career. Sure. But his uh, tutorials on sculpting and painting are better in that book. Anyway, when I first saw this picture... ...of the defeated Brits and their Indian aides-de-camp, you know, returning from this battle. The storytelling of all of these figures interacting together, and uh, I I just had to read up on on what was happening here. I mean, Mm -hmm. the diorama told the whole story to me, and I knew British in India you know, many, many, many years of different conflicts, right? But what was happening here? You know, to have the greatest army on earth having had their butts kicked and be limping home. You know, we all know uh, Charge of Light Brigade. We're familiar with all of mm-hmm. those paintings, right? But but what happened here? I had to know. Mm-hmm. So he drove me to the books, yeah. which is, uh, you know, uh, 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 something that I think is really valuable and underrated. uh you know the storytelling. Yeah. Our our number one mantra.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I'd I'm, love
0: to see that piece in person sometime.
1: Oh yeah, I wonder who owns it. I we ought to ask Bill who has that. If we
0: both sold both of our houses, we could maybe uh, chip in and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Bill Haran, for doing that, and uh, we'll have to have him on again at some other point to go further in depth. But uh yeah. you wanted to talk about something uh, one of our listeners uh brought up right
1: yeah, so I've just been hearing on on other podcasts and uh and actually on facebook pages uh, every so often uh, the argument comes up that uh, about the uh the i p m s method of judging versus the open system uh the one two three versus the metals and yeah it's a first off it's it's very apparent that very few people in the u.s understand how the open system works very few and a lot of times they just seem to think that you're just replacing first second and third with gold silver and bronze and that's that's the first hurdle but i also hear american modelers constantly saying well I like the system how the Europeans do it, the open system, and it's it's apparent to me that they don't seem to realize that there are open system shows in the United States that they could go to and and see how it works. Do you? Yeah. And it's it's a little frustrating to me because I think I think some people assume that the Chicago show and MFCA and Atlanta are just miniature shows. And the ordinance is just an afterthought, and it's looked down upon. And I, I don't know why they would get that feeling. Do you? Do you think that? Do you get that feeling that people think that? I I don't know. I think people
0: remain confused. I think we've made huge inroads at the MMSI show into the ordinance modeling world uh, because several of our best modelers. Dan Tizanchik and Greg Seelar and Andy Golden, uh, mm-hmm. and I mean best in every field. They enter yeah. in fantasy and in ordinance and in historical, in open, and in painters, um, you know, are dedicated members of AMPS, the yeah. Armor Model Preservation Society. And I think that the AMPS show, which is one of the biggest... Uh, Ordinance shows in the Midwest, uh, they they have adopted the open system, or they always were. I don't know uh, what yeah. the history specifically is. Um, you know, and people do understand uh, that, that, you know, ordinance is welcome at MMSI between those two tank guys and John Leland who is yeah. one of the best uh, ship modelers in yeah. the United States yeah. period, hard stop um,
1: Well, well who, show... who's the guy that does the, the 72nd scale aircraft who's just incredible uh, With they often crash German airplanes with the figures oh,
0: we have several um, is it Steven Hustad? Air... Oh, Steven Steve Hustad yes, yeah. yes, 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 yeah. he's an extraordinary modeler. incredible stuff yeah. incredible, incredible modeler um and so uh you know they're welcomed at MMSI and that encourages them to go to MFCA. They're 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 uh busy uh members of AMPS. Um I don't think we have that much of a problem in the Midwest here. Um but but people, you know, and I, I think Barry even more than first, second, and third, the uh confusion with ordnance modelers. Ordinance being a term covers everything, you mm-hmm. know, from, from trucks to uh, tanks to aircraft, mm-hmm. um, is they don't understand the difference between open and painters. Yeah. Now, now painters is uh, you finished the vehicle and you were judged solely on the quality of the modeling and painting.
1: Yeah. Or, or and, let's say you scratch-built something. You could actually enter it in painters if you only wanted it judged on your painting and weathering, right?
0: On the finishing, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Whereas open is you're being judged on uh the finishing. Uh, But also the modeling and what else you did, whether it's a vehicle that only existed in prototype and there are no kits of it and you have created it to show us or super detailed it or super detailed it or you are setting it in a diorama with figures, uh, you know, uh, telling a story. Um, So you're judged on the whole package there. Now. Granted, there is a little confusion. You could enter the vehicle and figures and diorama in historical open or you can enter them in open.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Right? That gets that gets but, confusing. That's actually the most confusing area for yeah. the judging.
0: That is. That is probably. But if you want you know, historical open is the place if you want the entirety. From, uh, you know, the diorama, the figures, the, the vehicle to all be judged, mm-hmm. right, as yeah. a whole. Yeah. Whereas I would say ordinance open is those things are going to be considered, but the star of the show is your vehicle. Yeah. yeah. You want to keep the focus primarily on the vehicle.
1: Right. And, and you mentioned what ordinance is, and I've, I've had this happen quite a few times fairly recently where I'll mention that there is an ordinance part of the show, um, and that's any vehicle. And I get things like, oh, so that's just like, yeah, whatever fits in that, just throw it over there, right? And that's not no. the idea. That's not the point of that. The, the reason that there is a separation between ordinance, historical, and fantasy is not because any of those are, are seen as being you know, uh, more important than another. Uh, just given the history of MMSI being a m- historical miniature show from the beginning that's going to be the emphasis but it's not that the other stuff is looked down upon ordnance models i, I remember an aircraft winning best of show yeah at, yeah at and, and John Leyland's ships have and ships right
0: best of show yeah uh,
1: <clears throat> but the main reason and correct me if i'm wrong i am pretty sure i'm not wrong the main reason those cat those um uh, divisions are set out that way is because you want to group judges together that know what they're looking at. So you don't want to have a a group judging ordinance and fantasy and historical, and only part of that they really are in tune with, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's
0: absolutely true. And you may be uh, familiar with IPMS and maybe even with AMPS, and this is your first trip to the MMSI. And, uh, uh, you know, first of all, ask uh, any of the club members, and they'll suggest whether you should be in historical open or ordinance open. Uh, but also, you know, if you want to uh, be uh, grouped with the other modelers you're more familiar with showing with. Sure. Right. Right. Um, You know, in the ordinance section. Um, And, you know, it's it's several chances. I mean, if you have six figures uh, surrounding a Kettenkrad, let's say, right, small vehicle, uh, a lot of figures, uh, maybe uh, the story and the figures interacting with the vehicle, it puts you in historical open, whereas you did. Uh, the most amazing, super detailed, uh, maybe even scratch-built Kenton Crod ever, with mm-hmm. one guy just about to hop on. Uh, maybe that's ordnance because the star yeah. of your show yeah. there is this vehicle.
1: Yeah, it could be. It could be either, right? And and I think it could be either. It uh, I could think be that either. The thing that's important to remember is uh, it's never. I, I've seen shows covered in magazines where it's used as a penalty or or a way to disqualify things. It's almost like they're looking for ways to disqualify stuff. We never look at it that way in Chicago. No, it, it, no, no, no. The first the first thing that we do is ask the modeler and, and say, this is the case, we think you would do better here, or whatever. Do you want to move it? And it's up to them. If there's a case where it just doesn't make sense where they've entered something and we can't get a hold of them, the rule is... Put them someplace, put them in the place where we where they will do best. Is that fair to say? Yes, yes.
0: Always err on the side of where the modeler is going to get her highest award. Yes. Um. And, and that is not, you know, I hear uh, the three or four styrene-only people who listen to us saying, oh, uh, that's what we keep saying, open system, everybody gets a prize. Yep. No, 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 no. Yep. You are being judged against the level of the hobby in whatever area, fantasy, ordinance, historical, painting, or scratch building and sculpting, that's what open means. Um, You're being judged against uh, where the hobby is, you know, and um, you are not being sliced and diced into ridiculously narrow IPMS categories. Best Japanese propeller airplane, right?
3: Right, right? Or
0: or or Sherman Firefly. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's so many Shermans at a show, right? You can't right. just have Sherman, right? You know, uh, best uh, uh, non-U.S. Sherman, right? You know, it's like, oh, come on. You know, because if it's a really narrow category, first, second, and third really don't mean much if there were four entries, right? Yeah. Whereas right. if it's just a Sherman category and there's 50 Shermans at the show you know hey of those 50 uh 10 may be gold model shermans mm-hmm. and 25 may be silver yeah. and 20 may be bronze and a few stragglers are going to be the certificates yeah. well i hope uh, that adds up to 50
1: well the the other part of that that I, I hear i've i've heard quite often is uh that judging in open shows just takes too long it won't work for a big show and and I. There are massive shows that use the open system and get their judging done just fine. The and World it, Expos. Uh,
0: yeah. yeah. How many exhibitors did we have at Chicago World Expo 2017? Oh,
1: God, I don't know, but it was it was a lot. It was as big— I
0: said 500 before, I'm thinking five or 600, but that's with some people bringing 10 pieces.
1: Yeah, it was—I mean, it was— bigger than any IPMS regional show I've ever seen. Uh and and the World Expos in Europe make IPMS USA shows look like uh, you know, yeah a a meeting or something.
0: Oh, it was massive uh Stress uh, uh the World Expo there right. and there are just more teams of judges, yeah. you know. They're bigger shows, more modelers are coming. Yeah. Uh well, you know well,
1: I I've been involved in IPMS judging and in open judging and I the open judging system is far more uh, efficient and and takes less time uh it's it, it, I've seen it happen firsthand it, it's there that is not a concern. <laughs>
0: Yeah. No, no, I don't think so either. Um, I'm always very proud of the judges in Chicago. I think we had nine teams this year. Uh, they take it very seriously. They get out there. And, uh, you know, why does it go more efficiently? Because the gold level work, when you get to Bill Horan's exhibit, you know, the only debate is over which of the six pieces right. there. Yeah. You know, we, this is obviously gold. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and most of the time is spent between the silver and bronze talking about uh you know, where is this modeler exactly? Right. You know, not that you're you're not comparing scores with the other modelers, yeah. but which piece here is the best. There may be one silver piece amid four other bronzes. Right. This yeah. piece jumps out. The judges mm-hmm. decide this piece is the one to score, and then they go and individually give their scores. Yeah. I think, Barry, uh, I know from uh, innumerable conversations with Shep and Joe Burton, um, we'll be, we could talk about this every week for three hours and never do another show, and people would still be confused.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, and that, what that tells me is that uh, I think people need to go to a show. They need to go to MMSI. Yeah go to MFCA, go to Atlanta. I believe Atlanta uh, doesn't... uh, Don't they do a co-hosted show with uh, Amps? I'm not sure. Yes, they do. Right, so that's a little bit different, but but still, I think it it would benefit anybody who has any questions to actually go to a show and see how it works. And I'm not... There's no way I'm going to say... The open shows are perfect. Everything. There's no problem or anything. But no,
0: there's no we're always fine tuning the system, and there's always two or three things yeah. that go wrong.
1: Yeah, and and it. I think the the biggest benefit though, is that it it creates a more social atmosphere, and people are there as uh, co participants more than competitors with each other, and I think that's healthy in my mind. And uh, the, class,
0: the classic line you want to compete take up tennis.
1: Right, right. Uh and I I have heard on uh, I was just listening to Plastic Posse guys last night on their episode 35 John Bonani has been he went to World Expo Chicago. And mm. and he's he's a fan of the open system. He likes the open system. I don't know. Well, he said that right out in the open. He's actually an IPMS uh officer right now. Mm. So, wow, that could be dangerous, huh? Well,
0: it was Shep's lifelong goal to get IPMS to switch the open system.
1: Yeah, I I don't think it'll happen. And and I feel like if people want that competition thing, that's fine. That's no problem. I I think where it's a problem is where they completely discount other um, types of competition because it is not a competition and people aren't winning or losing.
0: Yeah, well, and it gets back to that fundamental philosophy. You know, art shows are not supposed to be competitions. Right. Are you an art show or are you whatever? Right. Uh, I'll do you one better, and this will be a good place to end. Uh, In addition to going to a show and seeing how the system works, contact the uh, show chair, contact the chief judge, and volunteer to be uh, an associate judge. Right. Uh yeah. every year at MMSI we have uh volunteers who have never uh judged a show and they are welcome as the fourth member of the team of 3 to uh trail along and view the area that team is viewing, uh take part in the conversations of uh, this piece. This piece is the one that jumps out. This, Let's score this piece. And then they go uh, separately. All those judges all go separately and give their scores. And it goes to the head judge. And every year, I get those assistant Uh, tally sheets, and I take a look and see how they compared with the other judges, Mm -hmm. right? And, and, uh, you know, uh, if they're developing the eye of what is gold, what is silver, what is bronze, uh, and when you tag along and hear the discussions and see how it works and see that it takes 3 or 4 hours on the friday night of the show opening uh and how seriously these great modelers uh take their task uh and what they look at um you know it's really educational it's it's a, it's a phd lesson and yeah. uh in this whole thing. And you know, you, you do that three or four times and you may well become a judge.
1: Sure, yeah. And I think just doing it once would, is invaluable as far as seeing how the system works. Even
0: just do it at once. I've had many people say, wow, I've been complaining for years about the judges and wow, I learned so much doing
1: yeah. this. I, I, think, uh, I think it would benefit anyone. And I, I believe all of the open system miniature shows in the U.S. have yes. something like that, at least the ones I'm familiar with. They
0: do. Some are more organized than others. As chief judge in Chicago, I try to, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, uh, get people committed a week or two in advance, and which team, and I give them the map. You know, at MFCA, I know why you were laughing. You know, it's kind of like at the last minute, you can find Dennis and say, hey, can I follow somebody? And he'll say, Dennis Levy, he'll say, yeah, sure, great, be an assistant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, like, good luck nailing that down in advance
1: yeah yeah it it does work though i've i've done uh, it does work yeah it's it's not a big deal i i would highly encourage any modeler to go to one of these shows if they can
0: absolutely absolutely you know uh instead of uh uh scratching your head standing on the sidelines or taking pot shots standing on the sidelines join in sure well we've made it to the end of another episode barry um and uh I don't know. Do we want to say what our next one is?
1: I'm not sure. We really know f- for certain.
0: Okay. So, well, we've got two w- w- that yeah. we're going back and forth between, and we have a list yeah. of a dozen other people that we're dying to interview right away. Yeah. So uh, even though these will be coming at you slightly less frequently, I think they're going to be better than ever. And again, that's all thanks to you.
1: Well, yeah. Thank you. But I, uh, We also might throw in a bonus episode here and there, just a short little thing we yeah know.
0: So, yeah you never know if yeah. we got a burning desire to get something out yep. there i hate rules <laughs> that's why we are the punkest
1: podcast <laughs> right